Hey, podcast listeners, Michael Shelley here. Somebody suggested I do sort of a crickety themed podcast, uh, encore podcast, and so here it is: two interviews with Sonny Curtis, one with Jerry Allison. The the first two we're going to hear from uh, Sonny Curtis from 2007, and then Jerry Allison from 2007, and then we're going to hear from Sonny Curtis. Most recent, I think it's last summer, the, the crickets were supposed to play in town. Maybe it's two summers ago now. And Jerry got sick and couldn't make it. We decided to not cancel the interview and just uh, to talk about the crickets, talk about Jerry a little bit. So you'll hear those in that order. Uh, you know, one of the greatest bands ever. Their work with Buddy Holly, uh, just amazing. Then their solo stuff, really interesting all over the map. And then uh, Sonny Curtis's solo career and as a songwriter, just mind-bogglingly good. Uh, that's it. Some interesting stuff coming up. I think I've got Kim Shattuck from The Muffs going to be on the show. Their first album's being re-released with bonus tracks, and it's one of my all-time favorite albums. You hear my you can hear my washing machine going in the background. I'm in the basement right now doing a load of whites. Uh, what else? I, I'm working on a few other things. So stick stick uh, around. Check out wfmu.org/michael. And don't forget, if you ever want to hear these whole programs, uh, you can go 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 to wfmu.org/michael. They're all archived there. You can hear both of these entire shows uh, with all the music and stuff. At, at WFMU.org slash Michael. Okay, first Sonny Curtis from 2007, then Jerry Allison in 2007, and then more recent Sonny Curtis. Hope you enjoy and thanks. Ah, I forgot. I forgot. One important thing I forgot to tell you. The, the, these interviews from 2007 were archived in real audio, and they've all been transferred from real audio, so now we can listen to them because that's like a Fred Flintstone format. But they have a little bit of a noisiness, a little squealiness to them that happened I, somehow in the transferring all of them do on, on the archives. But I figure it's better to hear them than nothing. You get used to it quickly. Also, it's from 2007. I'm just a better interview. Now it's a little bit embarrassing to listen to yourself that long ago, but uh, stick with me. I trust you, and uh, it's Jerry, it's Jerry Allison and Sonny Curtis, and, and they make me look good. So, uh, once again, thanks. Baby, baby, my heart. Is the Crickets their baby, my heart, on WFMU? Before that, the Everly Brothers, I Used to Love You, Andy Williams, A Fool Never Learns, Glenn Campbell, The Straight Life, and Laurel Aitken with Walk Right Back. All those songs have one thing in common, and that is Sonny Curtis. Sonny, welcome to WFMU. Well, it's great to be here, Michael. Good morning. And good morning to y'all. <laughs> You've really had quite a career. I mean, it's, it's mind-boggling. Well, it's uh, it's been kind of long. The money wasn't very good, but the hours were long. <laughs> I don't believe either of those things. Uh, you were born in Meadow, Texas. Tell me about your childhood. Uh, Meadow, Texas is a small farming community about 30 miles southwest of Lubbock, uh, which is the bigger city around that area. And uh, my dad was a cotton farmer, and... Uh, I had a, a terrific childhood. Meadows about a, it was a very small town, about 400 people. Most of the people were uh, farmers, uh, you know, and of course merchants like grocery store, uh, gas stations, and such. But uh, uh, it was a wonderful childhood, man. Just uh, I did a little work on the farm of my pop, and had an opportunity to think long thoughts and <laughs> that sort of things. So that pretty well covers it. And you played the fiddle and the guitar as a real young kid. 
Um, actually, I did. Uh, my uh, I was really fortunate. I had an uncle. His name was Ed Mayfield, who played and sang uh, at one point with Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys. And he was a great singer, and uh, as a matter of fact, he had brothers. They had a bluegrass uh, band around there, and so uh, Ed Mayfield and his brothers were were a strong influence on me and my brothers. I had two older brothers who played and sang, so. Uh, yeah, we uh, uh, I learned to play fiddle and guitar at a very early age. And really, as just a little kid, you're playing talent contests, state fairs, that kind of thing. Uh, well, well, that was that was, of course, a little later. I mean, when I first learned to play the guitar, I, I could only play on the top four strings because my hand wouldn't reach across the uh, <laughs> the neck. I was <laughs> that's how small I was when I learned to play. My aunt taught me how to play and sing a little brown jug, but. Uh, yes, when I got a little older, like up into like a freshman in high school, I I started entering talent contests and and such. And that, is that about the time you met Buddy Holly and Jerry Allison? I met Buddy Holly before I met Jerry Allison. I met Buddy when I was like a, um, I think I was about a freshman in high school. And Bob Montgomery, you may be familiar with that name. Mm-hmm. He's he's a, a big music publisher in Nashville. Of course, he's retired now and lives in Australia, of all things. But. He and Buddy had a group, and uh, we uh, uh, we ran into each other and liked each other, and uh, we uh, we played country music and bluegrass music and and such, and uh, so that was about uh, I was about a freshman when I got associated with Buddy. Uh, people don't realize, I mean, I was kind of, you know, looking over your career, you know, Buddy's career really sort of takes off in 1956 or so, and, you know, there's really, you look at the charts, it's not like a lot of rock and roll on the charts, you know, there's not a lot to copy there. Well, we, uh, uh, when, uh, I used to hang out a, a whole lot with Buddy, and we used to. I used to spend the night over at his house, and we'd get up at midnight and go out, sit in the car, and listen to Stan's record rack out of Shreveport, Louisiana, and that they played uh, what they called it race music in those days. Of all things, that may be politically incorrect now, but they had wonderful music, man. They had all Lonnie Johnson and uh, the, the great Spiders, great groups of the day. Uh, you know that uh, rhythm and blues. I guess you would um, say mostly today. But we'd sit out there and listen to that stuff forever. And uh, I guess uh, Buddy sort of was influenced uh, in that. And of course Elvis Presley uh, came along, and Little Richard and Ray Charles. All those were tremendous influences on all of us. And Buddy was influenced by that. So he uh, he fell into rock and roll uh, quite easily. As a matter of fact. When Elvis came through Lubbock, and I believe it was 1955, uh, I was like a senior in high school. Uh, we uh, uh, we started playing Elvis stuff the next day. Uh, I played the lead guitar because I played a little bit like Chet Atkins, and you know Scotty Moore had a Chet Atkins kind of a lick that was his style. And uh, and a guy named Don Guest played the slap bass like Bill Black. Man, we started booking out the next day. Man, we <laughs> learned his stuff in no time. <laughs> That's interesting. So, yeah, people don't realize before the crickets there was, was it the Two-Tones? Well, it, we we named ourselves the Two-Tones. Boy, that happened as we, uh, we got a gig about that time I was talking about and when we started uh, being Elvis clones. We got a gig up in uh, Oklahoma City, and it, went, it was a tour that didn't last long. We went down through Texas and Tulsa and first one place and the other, and... And uh, 
we uh, we didn't have any uniforms, so we bought it. We stopped when we got to Oklahoma City the day of the show, and it was afternoon. We went in a haberdashery there and bought ourselves some white pants, and we bought an orange shirt and a blue shirt. <laughs> and uh, we said, uh, "What are we going to call our groups?" And so we said, "Oh, this is kind of a two-tone color. Let's call ourselves the Two Tones." When the record came out, uh, we had had a record deal down in Nashville uh, on Decca. When the record came out, the powers that be changed it to the three tunes. <laughs> so that's that's how the three tunes came. I'm, I'm sure that was just everybody's all choked up about that story. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that one before. <laughs> that, that's how it came about. So, so, you know, you guys are still 19, 20 years old, still real young guys, and Buddy's writing these great songs, and he's also taken some songs from you, songs from Bob Montgomery, you know, all the guys. You end up going to Nashville. Why did they send you to Nashville to make those first Buddy Holly records? Uh, well, because that's where the, the deal was. Uh, we got that deal through uh, a guy named Eddie Crandall, who was uh, he was a road manager for uh, people like Hank Snow and Marty Robbins and uh, and uh, we had a guy in Lubbock uh, that owned a radio station named Dave Stone. He used to bring country acts in there all the time. And we used to open for those acts. I opened for them as a solo, and then we opened it for them as a group. But uh, Eddie Crandall uh, heard us as a group. He went back to Nashville and uh, reported to Jim Denny, who owned Cedarwood Publishing Company at the time, and was also the head of the Grand Ole Opry. And rock and roll was taken off big time with Elvis and and that sort of thing. So uh, and Jerry Lee Lewis and uh, so Buddy uh, uh, they got we called Buddy and gave him a deal on Decca and, um, so and they, I think they were trying to emulate Memphis, you know. So they brought us to Nashville. Those first records, like Blue Days, Black Nights, was the very first record. I played lead on that, and then uh, Love Me it was the backside and. And uh, rock around with Ollie V is one I wrote, and uh, you know we just <laughs> we just went down to Nashville because that's where the deal was. Uh, do you think that they understood rock and roll there, or were they just trying to jump on the bandwagon? They, uh, they, I, I don't think they understood it. They were just trying to get up on the bandwagon. They thought, man, we ought to capitalize on this uh, uh, well, phenomenon, I guess you would call, it, while it's here, because I don't think anybody expected it to be around long. As good as those cricket sides are, some of those very early sides that you that you just discussed, the ones you play on, uh, you know, Midnight Shift, those kind of things, they really are just the the real birth of you know of the white rock and roll, so to speak, right there. Yeah, and I think, well, I thank you very much. I think that uh, that one of the reasons those didn't quite. Uh, do uh, as much as uh, they expected. For one thing, those people, as you said, didn't understand. They just sort of turned on the machine, and they they didn't even let Buddy Holly play a guitar. Can you imagine that? As good a guitar picker as he was, uh, they had. I was playing lead, and they had Grady Martin playing rhythm. Yeah, that, that's me. He only one of the best guitar players ever. Uh, Grady Martin, of yeah. course. Yeah, he I, played rhythm. <laughs> and you're a kid playing lead in front of Grady Martin. That must have been uh, nervous. Yeah, I, I, you know what? If I if I had to do it now, I'd be nervous. But <laughs> but I was so green and so naive and so full of myself at the time. I thought, man, I can't wait to show Grady Martin what I got. Oh, interesting. <laughs> but uh, but uh, but guy named Buddy Harmon played drums, and of course Don Guest played the bass, and uh, we uh, we made those those first records uh, at uh, Bradley's Barn. Right, the world famous barn. So. Basically, uh, you, you guys go back to to, to Texas, uh, 
and the, the records, the recordings sort of aren't a hit for whatever reason, and everybody starts doing their own thing a little bit, or correct me if I'm wrong, and uh, you sort of take a job working with Slim Whitman and Webb Pierce guys, the Hank Snow guys like that? Well, I uh, yes, uh, I was uh, first off. I went out, out with Slim Whitman, and uh, it's been so long ago. It's hard to get to uh, get this in chronological order. <laughs> just come close. I went out with Slim Whitman. Uh, that that gig uh, was that was a great gig, and Slim was a terrific old boy. I really thought the world of him. Uh, but that gig only lasted about fifteen minutes, and then uh, we uh, then I got. Uh, fortunately, I was hired uh, to go uh, on the Philip Morris Country Show. That guy, Jim Denny, uh, started that. Talk about politically incorrect that I mentioned earlier. Philip Morris Cigarettes had this show, it was a live show, and we went all through the South uh, playing high school auditoriums, and they'd pass out free cigarettes. People would fire up, man. <laughs> and, and, I mean, uh, this was in 1957. Yeah, things, uh, things that, have changed a little bit. That was a different life, man. But, uh, yeah, I went... Uh, the, and that was March of 1957 that I was on the Philip Morris Country Music Show. August of 56 is when I left to go out on the road with Slim Whitman. And right at that time, that's sort of when the crickets uh, come together. Did you regret not staying with the crickets? Uh, not really. You know, I've, I've never regretted that because, uh, well, you know, you never know what uh, uh, what could happen, you know, uh, because... Uh, I could have uh, fooled around and been on the plane, which would have right. been, uh, you know, that would have ended it. And uh, it, was, it was a real tragedy that that, that happened. But uh, also, uh, I uh, I had uh, a lot of plans and hopes and a lot of dreams. And, man, I was, I was out there raring to go yeah, and trying to make it. You've had an amazing career. Anyway, so Buddy Holly, like you said, uh, passes away February 3rd, 1959. It's really amazing that all those Buddy Holly records were made in three years. You know, it's such a deep, rich catalog of, of music. Oh, yeah, boy, he, he sure pumped a lot of music into the system while he was around, that's for sure. Yeah, so he, he passed away. Do you remember where you were when that happened? Yeah, I was at, uh, I was, uh, we had uh, been to... Uh, we lived over in Clovis, New Mexico. I joined back up with the crickets because Buddy had moved to New York, and uh, and uh, Buddy, uh, rather J.I. Jerry Allison, the drummer, we call him J.I. for Jerry Ivan. <laughs> we uh, drove. Uh, he and his wife Peggy Sue. We drove from Clovis to uh, Lubbock. That's about a hundred mile trip. And I had spent the night with with J.I. And uh, when I got up the next morning. Uh, uh, I, uh, I had the sad duty of going in to wake up J.I. and Peggy Sue and tell them that Buddy had died. A lady from across the street came over and said she had just heard it on the radio. So yeah. That's where I was. J- uh, uh, Buddy moved to New York because, I mean, I'm guessing he wanted to get away from Norman Petty, who was his manager at the time. Yeah, that's that's true. He wanted to, and Buddy also uh, was a little older than the rest of us. Uh, he was older uh, than I by about maybe uh, six or seven months or so. He was born in I was born in May of thirty-seven. He was born in September of thirty-nine. Um, <clears throat> I mean thirty-six. I beg your pardon, thirty-six. So he'd have been about nine months older than I. Um, but J.I. and Joe B. Now they were real young. You know, they were. Joe, Joe B. couldn't have been more than like about 17 or early 18. Mm-hmm. J.I. may have been a year older. 
I was a little older than them. So they didn't want to go to New York? They didn't want to go to New York because they wanted to stay in Lubbock uh, to, because they had a good place to ride their motorcycles. That's how much vision they had. <laughs> what? But, but Buddy had had a little more vision and, and a little more... Uh, he was a little more level-headed being a little older, and he wanted to get to New York because he, he thought that was where the action was, and, of course, he was correct. Yeah, he know? did cut some great records in New York. Tell me, I mean, you must have crossed paths with Norman Petty a million times. Uh, he's a con- sort of a controversial figure for a lot of reasons. What's your take on that? Yeah, Norman, uh, 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 he and I have a bit of a story. He uh, he had a, a group called the... Uh, Norman Petty Trio, which consisted of him on organ, his wife on piano, and a guy named Jack Vaughn, really a nice guy, played guitar. And Jack Vaughn quit uh, in like early 1956, and Norman offered me the job. Well, uh, I, I really was anxious to make a little money and make my mark, and I thought, man, I better take this. And uh, <laughs> I talked to Buddy about it, and I didn't have an electric guitar at the time. And Norman said he'd buy me electric guitar, and Buddy, uh, <clears throat> Buddy called and said, or I called him. However, we talked to each other, and Buddy said, "Man, you ought not to take that gig. Stick around with us, man." Uh, uh, he said, "Cause we're about to make it." And I said, "How long is it going to take us to make it?" And he said, "Oh, about as long as it took Elvis Presley." <laughs> but anyway, uh, he said, "I'll buy you electric guitar." He said, "Man, you're not going to be, you're not going to le- like those songs." And, that we called it Mickey Mouse music. <laughs> I went over an audition, and sure enough, man, uh, we were saying "Honeysuckle Rose," <laughs> you know. And, and uh, uh, I said, "Oh, I can't fade this," so yeah. I, I turned it down. And Norman never forgave me for that. Uh, you don't turn Norman Petty down, man. He never forgave me for turning him down. He never liked me again. Interesting. And, uh, and uh, I, uh, Norman was. Uh, uh, I called him a Bible thumper, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but he's that's somebody that's kind of a charlatan, man. I, I, I don't want to say to speak too ill about uh, people that are no longer with us because they don't have to, they can't defend themselves. But Norman, uh, Norman wasn't a nice guy, man. Okay. He uh, he put his name on songs that that uh, they didn't belong on, uh, like Jerry Allison wrote uh, and Buddy wrote, uh, "Not Fade Away." That's one of the great songs of all time. You know, like it kicked off the Rolling Stones career. And J.I. doesn't get a penny because Norman put his name on it and took J.I.'s off, you know. Wow. And uh, I don't have many good things to say about Norman Petty. Yeah. Well, Excuse me very much. Well, that's, that's the truth is the truth hurts, you know. Yeah. <laughs> was he good in the studio or, or was that really the band's doing? No, no, he was, he was, he was good. He, uh, he knew how to get a good sound and he was a good engineer and a talented person. He played piano and he was a good musician and had good ears and good taste and, uh, All right. and that sort of thing, you know. Uh, and he, you know, like, that'll be the day, I think, was a, uh, a monaural record, you know. I mean, like that, <laughs> you know. Sounds fantastic, yeah. So, so that'll so- be the day. As a matter of fact, it was a demo. They, uh, they, re- they cut it twice, you know, and they sent it to New York. And uh, they put out the demo, and, and uh, <laughs> when Buddy heard that it, it was they put that out. Buddy said, "Oh man, we can, we can cut it so much better, man. Don't don't let them put that one out." <laughs> but it, it was already out. <laughs> huh. So Buddy's in New York, and the Crickets call you up, and they say, "You know, we're we're going to go alone a, as a group, you know." And they and they get you and Earl Sinks, uh, and you guys start recording as the Crickets. That's right. But that was the. Uh, uh, actually, about the time Buddy moved to New York, uh, this is about uh, 
Oh, I'm guessing it's summer of of fifty eight. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. You record a few sides for Decca, and then eventually move out to L.A. and you get signed to Liberty. Yeah, and. Uh, at this point, it's real interesting. There's there's a great best of on uh, of the Liberty stuff called uh, I think it's called the Liberty Years, and it's an amazing record. Partly because you're sort of like, you know, it's very clear you had Buddy Holly sort of leading the band, even though he took everybody's input, obviously. And it seems like from that point on, the band doesn't quite have a focus, and there's an incredible amount of music being made, but it's sort of all over the map. It seems to sort of maybe be chasing the top 40 at some times, and sometimes it's sort of ahead of the top 40, sometimes it's behind it. Well, yeah, it was, uh, we we had, uh, <clears throat> well, first off, we were all incredibly young. We didn't didn't know what we were doing, you know, <laughs> particularly, and, uh, and we had a, a, a producer, Snuff Garrett, uh, who he was a good producer, and he produced uh, some really good records on, like Bobby V, for instance. Right. Oh, uh, Gene McDaniel's and oh, uh, Johnny Burnett. It seems like the Liberty Crew uh, was a, sort of a tight knit family. You see a lot of instances where one artist is covering another artist's song or playing on another guy's uh, session. Yeah, that was a, like. Uh, <clears throat> For instance, more than I can say that uh, uh, Bobby V cut a really a good record on that, the J.I. and I wrote. Right. And uh, uh, But there again, we had recorded that for Coral, and when we signed up with Liberty, uh, well, for one thing, uh, I uh, I went to the Army for two years just about that time, and so I was <laughs> I, I was seriously out of pocket because I, I spent 18 months in France. and and uh, But uh, you're right, uh, we didn't have... Uh, much focus or much direction we just try kind of trying everything right in some ways that's what's so great about the records but i could sort of see how from a commercial perspective it was kind of hard to package you know or hard to hard to know exactly what to do with but they're real interesting records well well yeah thank you there are a lot of them interesting a lot of them that really i don't know have a have a kind of a weird aroma. <laughs> well, you, like you said, you're trying anything. There's also, I mean, if you the the number of different people who play on these records as an actual part of the band, there must be 25 guys who are crickets. All you know, you're you're going to the army, and you know, folks are leaving and coming and trying different things. And I think you know, Glenn Campbell singing on some of these records. Yeah, absolutely, Glenn Campbell and Bobby V and. Uh, Oh, I, you know, I don't have a list in front sure. of me, but Tommy Alsop, who uh, played some really great stuff on, like the solo on It's So Easy, mm. uh, he was like a, a Snuff Garrett's, um, oh, uh, the guy that get rounds up all the musicians, what do you call that? <laughs> but anyway, he, he worked for for Liberty doing that, you know. Mm. So, um, so at this point, you're also making some solo records, and you're writing lots and lots of songs, which are getting out all over the place. We heard that Andy Williams cut "A Fool Never Learns." I mean, that's that's a you know such a mainstream record at that time. The the Glenn Campbell cut "The Straight Life," you know, they're amazing songs. But you, I fought the law, walk right back. Those two songs. Well, I fought the law. I I wrote that. Uh, before I went to the army, I, th I think you know I wrote that about uh, oh the springtime of '58, I believe, was when I wrote. And how, that. Long, how long did it take you to write "I Fought the Law"? 
Pardon? How long did it take to write I Fought the Lord? No time at all. <laughs> I wrote it in probably 20 minutes. I mean, you can listen to it and, and tell it. <laughs> you don't have to be real smart to write those lyrics. But, yeah, I wrote it very quickly. And as a matter of fact, I'm really lucky that I, that, it, that things unfolded because that's my most important copyright by uh, by a stretch. Um, but uh, I... Uh, I just had that in my head, you know. I never wrote it down. <laughs> there, you, you write a lot of songs sort of about being an outsider or something. Is there, uh, you know, is this therapy via songwriting? <laughs> Who knows, man. I just I just sort of let my mind go, you know. It's <laughs> One thing I, I listened to, I must have heard about 20 versions of I Fought the Law this week as I was preparing for the interview. And one thing I noticed about this that song is almost really every version of it is the exact same arrangement which is really says something about the song. I mean, it's just dead on. You know, no matter who is doing that song, they do it the exact same way. Well, it, uh, yeah, uh, I thought our arrangement uh, was was good. Uh, J.I., of course, is a very innovative drummer, and when we, I wrote it as a country song, and when we we were on the way to New York to record that uh, album in style with the Crickets, we were riding along and. And uh, I said that we were trying to come up with, as a matter of fact, Jay and I wrote more than I can say on uh, sitting in the back seat of that Oldsmobile on the way to New York. And uh, you know, we had a little guitar we strum around on in the back seat. But I was saying, uh, how about this song? And I, I played I Fought the Law. And so I invented that uh, lick, you know, the, the the guitar lick in front. And Jay, I put right. those... Uh, uh, that snare doing quarter note triplets, you know, mm -hmm. like a gun, pow, 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 pow. <laughs> and before you know it, uh, we were in New York in the studio, and and that's that's how that came about. Yeah, and then about five, six years later, uh, Bobby Fuller Four covered the song really note for note. Yeah, they added uh, some vocal background that we didn't have, but they also uh, probably had overdub available. We uh, we didn't have that. We just uh, they just turned on the machine, and man, we started picking, and when it was over, it was over. <laughs> that's it. There mean, you are, voila! That's the song. <laughs> you talk about being an important copyright, and you know, song publishing, that kind of thing. Have you done? Did you manage at that point to hold on to that kind of stuff? I didn't. No, um, I wish I would have. Uh, now, J.I. and I did publish "Walk Right Back," which we uh, ultimately sold. Uh, which I'll, I've regretted for a long time. But Jay, I was going through a, a divorce, and we, we, he kind of needed money, and I thought, oh, what the heck, let's sell that company. Uh, it was cricket music. But uh, then we, uh, we we both got publishing companies and publishing interests, you know, and I've got a lot of, uh, half of a lot of my songs. And uh, the Mary Tyler Moore Show theme, J.I. and I published that which has been a, a real boon Th that song, uh, financially. That song, Love is All Around and I Fought the Law, they they seem to turn up in commercials, movies. I mean, like almost every five years, they, the songs get introduced again. It's just amazing, you know. Well, that, uh, and that's uh, that's one good thing about uh, owning the publishing, but Acuff Rose owns I Fought the Law, and um, the reason that happened is we were uh, coming back through Nashville to... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, visit the Everly Brothers because we'd been picking with them, like backing them, uh, their band, you know. And so we and Don, uh, we said, man, we got this song uh, to go back a little bit. Dick Clark, we presented it to him to say, hey, man, uh, why don't you publish this? And we were hoping he'd let us on American Bandstand, hmm. but he was kind of embroiled in that payola right. deal at the time. And he said, no, man, <laughs> I wouldn't touch this with a ten foot pole. Right. And, uh, Anyway, so we we told Don said, man, we got this song. You know anybody that might publish it? 
He said, oh, Wes Rose. <laughs> we took it to Wes Rose down at Acuff Rose, and of course he published it, yeah. Right. <laughs> and uh, he, he was very rather cold to us. We gave him about five songs. One of them was, uh, was uh, I Fought the Law, and he never thanked us for it. <laughs> and uh, that's, that's Wes Rose for you. Hmm. But, well, that's a whole other story, it sounds like. Uh, so you're kicking around, you know, the crickets are sort of finding their way. You get drafted. Uh, you come back. You're playing with the Everly Brothers, uh, kind of backing them up and stuff. You're doing your solo stuff. And you end up going back to music school? Yeah, well, that was um, – that I, I went to music school, uh, Sherman School of Music. I did that in 1970, uh, which is, you know, I'd been knocking around. I played guitar for the Everly Brothers for about three years. Off and on, I joined back up with the crickets, but J.I. sometimes, J.I. owns the crickets, and he, sometimes he didn't want to do it, and sometimes he did, and, and also he's trying to save his marriage to Peggy Sue. That didn't work, and he moved back and forth from California to Texas so much he had to put a motor in his furniture. And, and, so you end and, up sort of writing a lot of jingles to real well-known commercials. Well, that, that happened um, a little later uh, as well, that's like about 1970 well about 1970 I, I joined up with a guy and it was just a fluke deal uh he uh, he hired me he was looking for a country singer to sing a, a, a deal called lumberjack syrup which was up in the <laughs> northwest and and when i went over there well they told him that i wrote songs and he said man how about writing some jingles i said sure you know so he he had a mcdonald's radio uh, jingle coming up and uh, with a company out of Chicago, Needham, Harper, and Steers. And, and uh, so uh, he, I wrote two. We had to write six songs, and I wrote two of them that evening. And I went over there, and a guy flew out from Chicago and said, Oh, man, this is it. You know? <laughs> and so before I knew it, I was in the jingle business because, man, I couldn't believe how much money that paid. <laughs> and of course, uh, uh, McDonald's, you know, they... They pay well. Which McDonald's song did you write? Well, this was uh, this was in nineteen seventy. It was a radio uh, uh, campaign, and they were like uh, they were like um, they went with that song. Uh, you deserve a break today, right? And uh, one of them was for the working man, and it was called. And one of them was for a, a, a kid commercial, and another one was for the a woman commercial and a, That's a teenage girl commercial. That's and I can't remember, but they they all fit with that uh, the main theme, which is you deserve a break today. Right? Okay, I remember those commercials. Sure. Uh, you know, it, it's at that time. Did you realize that your body of work? was going to sort of become this thing that would provide this income forever and would keep getting recorded? Or did you think, oh, that's the end of, you know, I fought the law and walk right back and no one will ever hear those songs again? Actually, uh, I didn't uh, I didn't consider that. I was just working, man, you know. Uh, I, always, I always thought it was a sin to turn down work. <laughs> right. You know, I was playing sessions and writing songs, writing jingles, going out with the crickets, going out with the Everly Brothers, uh, man, you know, just anything that I could do to survive, and uh, right. and I uh, I enjoyed writing songs. If I uh, if I had some slack time, which uh, amazingly, as, as much as I like to work, <laughs> amazingly, uh, you find yourself with a lot of slack time. Sometimes, if I found myself with a little slack time, I'd sit down on the couch and start writing. You huh. know, yeah. write me a song. <laughs> so you're always working. Oh yeah, uh, 
I didn't consider sitting on the couch writing a song. I didn't consider that working. <laughs> Well, well, let's let's uh, close with a few quick questions here. Why I, I really think Jerry Allison, one of the most underrated drummers ever. Why is he so good? Well, boy, I had him. <laughs> Why is the sky blue? I don't know. <laughs> All right, he's just. Uh, but uh, Ji is a, is a he's a powerful, hard hitting drummer. Uh, he he's got a terribly good technique. I mean, it's just uh, you know like those. Uh, Paradiddles he plays on Peggy Sue, it's just so innovative at the time. It just, it was just he he knows how to play the song. Yeah, and very innovative. Yeah, that that's really the key. All right, I think that's it. He just plays the song, you know. Mm. And uh, and you're right, he is underrated. I uh, uh, I, I was really um, it made me mad that when they uh, inducted Buddy Holly in the in the uh, Hall of Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, they didn't even invite invite J.I. and Joe B. Yeah, uh, of course. You know, no reason to invite me, but but they should have at least invited J.I. and Joby. Absolutely. Uh, if Buddy had lived, what would he have gone country? What do you think he would have done? Well, I've been asked that question a lot, uh, and uh, I just uh, I just don't know. No. I do think that he was uh, it was going to be a you know a powerful force in the music business. I think he would have gotten into the business uh, side of it uh, probably, and the, I. Also, I think he would have been a good producer. You know, he produced Waylon Jennings' first record, uh, Jolie Blonde, right. and, uh, and whatever the other side was. But he would have been a real good producer, I think, and probably gotten into publishing. And when he died, he was, what was he, 22, I believe. Wow. And, man, he was way ahead of the curve. He, uh, he he had a lot going for him, and I believe that he would have figured out music and been one of the, the powerful forces in the music business. I, I think you're right. Uh, Saturday, April 21st, uh, Torrington, Connecticut, the Warner Theater, the Crickets are playing. What, what kind of a show is that going to be? Uh, now, did, run that by me again. <laughs> as far as uh, I know, April 21st, you guys are playing in Connecticut? Oh, really? Well, thanks for telling me. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I don't know. I wonder if that's a Dick Fox deal. Uh, it, I'm not sure. Well, what are the Cricket shows like now? Well, it... it, it it varies, you know. We generally uh, people expect to hear the old songs, and we play those. We play some of the newer stuff. Uh, well, I say newer stuff, you know, like Mary Tyler Moore Show theme. We always include that, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, it's a you know a variety show kind of. I mean, a variety of songs. You we still do, enjoy that? We do more than I can say, uh, which are, uh, uh, and I fought the law, which were crickets after post post Buddy Holly crickets, mm-hmm. and. Um, then we do that'll be the day in Peggy Sue and True Love Ways as a rule. But if it's sometimes we work for a guy up there named Dick Fox, and something tells me this might be one of his shows. But anyway, if it is, we generally do about fifteen minutes, you know, what? which means we have to go real quick because he does those variety shows with I a see. whole bunch of acts. Oh, well, you guys got to get a proper show in New York City, and uh, pardon? You got to get a proper show in New York City, so. All the folks can do. That'd be good, man. Uh, but we, we're not working as much as we used to. We're kind of slowed down a little bit. We still like to go out and do one every now and then. All right. Well, Sonny, you know, one of the all-time greats. I, it's just great to, to talk to you this morning. Well, thank you, man. Uh, um, you said you were going to ask me a lot of questions, and I believe you covered it. <laughs> We've covered everything. Uh, we're going to go out here with uh, the first of Sonny Curtis. I know it's not your favorite album, but I love this album, and uh, there's a great version of I Fought the Law on this one. Well, okay. <laughs> Sonny, you have a great weekend, and uh, stay warm. 
Thank you very much, Thank Michael. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, there's the crickets in My Little Girl. We did hear, if you'll remember, uh, Gary Lewis in the Playboys version of that song a little earlier. Slightly different lyrics and uh, great drumming there by Jerry Allison. Uh, Buddy Holly's Heartbeat before that. The crickets, I'm not a bad guy. Uh, Jerry Ivan Allison's Real Wild Child. Have to ask him about that. The crickets, Teardrop Fell Like Rain. Uh, Buddy Holly, That'll Be the Day. The crickets, I Fought the Law. Buddy Holly, Baby, I Don't Care. The crickets, he's old enough to know better, Buddy Holly. Take your time. Uh, all right here on the Mighty WFMU. And Jerry plays drums on all those songs. He co-wrote almost all of those songs, quite a few of that songs. Joining us right now on the phone, uh, Jerry Allison. Welcome to the program. How are you, Jerry? Doing great, Mike. Thanks. Uh, wow. I mean, that's just an amazing music there. You're blowing my mind. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, you were born in Texas, near Dallas. Uh, everything sort of happened for you uh, in Texas. When Tell me about growing up. Uh, we, uh, I was born near Dallas, then we moved to West Texas when I was uh, very young, and uh, I lived in Plainview, Texas for a while, and then moved to Lubbock, where I met Buddy Holly and Sonny Curtis and Joe Malden, and uh, started playing together, and well, I started playing drums in, uh, in grade school in a marching band, and then uh, we started uh, trying to make a little money playing in dance bands and things, and then uh, it all evolved around to uh, the crickets, and uh, Buddy Holly and I played together. Oh, actually, Sonny Curtis was in a band with Buddy in, in probably 54. That's about the time I started. And Sonny played the fiddle, and it was, uh, country music was the happening thing. And you guys were really just young teenagers at that time. And what it, what I, amazed me, trying to put all this into some sort of historical perspective, is that there really wasn't that much rock and roll for you guys to copy. You sort of, it seems like you had to make it up. Uh, we sort of did, because... Uh, there was pop music and country music, and we could listen to uh, Shreveport, Louisiana. Uh, late, there's a show from 10:30 to 11:30 at night, and uh, it, it played uh, like Fats Domino and Little Richard and uh, uh, Etta James and the Peaches and rhythm and blues music mostly. But other than that, uh, it was pretty well Pat Boone uh, covers what we could hear around Love, and that was in like 50, 55 when we got really. Seriously, hunting rock and roll music. The first record I bought was Fats Domino record called "Going to the River." But uh, when we played dances, you know, the kids wanted to hear rock and roll. So to have a have enough to to play, we'd have to write songs, and that's, that's sort of why we wrote "That'll Be the Day." It was just to have more rock and roll songs to play at dances. Uh, that's interesting. As you listen to sort of some of the very very early Buddy Holly uh, recordings, they sound slightly more country, slightly more rockabilly, and then you can sort of see it turn into something that's completely rock and roll and not rockabilly at all do you, do you remember how that came about was it something you, you all sat around and talked about um, I don't think we actually talked about it it just we just started playing more of that and, and some of the guys that were in and out of the band were, were liked country music weren't so into rock and roll hmm. and so as uh, like Buddy and I ended up playing a few a few jobs just the two of us so uh, uh, and we were both really serious into uh, you know Little Richard and just Chuck Berry and rock and roll, so I guess that's where we started playing more 
leaving the country stuff out. Yeah, it's an interesting transformation to sort of see it happen. And like I said, with no real role models, I guess there was Elvis Presley. Did he pass through town ever? He did. Uh, he came through, uh, the first time he came through, I don't think I saw him, but the second time uh, uh, he came out after the big show at the Coliseum and played a, a, a joint and where I was playing that night, playing the dance that night at the Cotton Club. And Buddy and Sunday Night, Don Guest, and Bob Montgomery probably had been out to see him and, and they all came to the, the Cotton Club afterwards. I think the, the artists on the show got uh, 25 bucks extra to come by and do a couple of songs at the Cotton Club. <laughs> And uh, anyway, that's the first time I saw Elvis. And Buddy was already uh, a big Elvis fan because he'd seen him one time before, I believe. But uh, anyway, I asked Elvis that night if uh, how come he didn't have a drummer. So oh, boy, he, that that's great. You know, Elvis knocked me out, and he said, "If I had a drummer, I'd sound just like Bill Haley." <laughs> but uh, yeah, it is interesting. Those Sun Sessions don't have a drummer on those records, right. and that's kind of what makes them really interesting in some ways it, it really is like uh, bill black played such good rhythm bass and hmm. uh, it was a good combo but uh, next time they came through town dj fontana was with them so hmm. uh was he fantastic oh uh, uh just totally amazing uh, i mean he should be called the king and because uh, he was he just sang just right and I just had a feel that nobody I'd ever seen had. Yeah, that's kind of the problem. One of the problems with remembering Elvis is that his personality was so strong, people forget he was an amazing singer. Oh, he was. was uh, Glenn Harden, who's an old friend of ours and played with the Crickets. In fact, he was playing the piano, My Little Girl, right. that I heard you play. He played with the Crickets for a long time. He, he played for Elvis for six, five or six, seven years. And... Uh, he was he was Glenn. He was amazed because somebody yell a song and Elvis would start singing it in the right key <laughs> that he maybe he hadn't done it in two years or something. Yeah. Glenn he was always just amazed at, at uh, what a huh. talent and how uh, like perfect pitch. And I mean Elvis was just good. <laughs> yeah, he just had it. Yeah. yeah, he did. So did Buddy Holly. I mean, did you know at age fifteen, fourteen, sixteen that this guy was a world class songwriter? Uh, I didn't think about that like that, but uh, I thought about him, even though we were like best friends, uh, I mean, we weren't at, at age 14, probably at age 16 we'd become best friends, and and uh, I had the same kind of feeling about Buddy Holly, that uh, about Elvis, like he had the charisma, and he, uh, you know, he sang good, and he played good, and, and the feel he had, you know, and he did stuff I'd never heard before, you know, I mean, he made up stuff, and um, I realized pretty soon he was... Uh, world-class something. I don't know if I thought about it as a songwriter. but Yeah, I mean, these, some of these songs are 50 years old, which seems old, but they're so fresh and still such a part of, you know, uh, American popular music. Yeah, I'm sure proud they are, too, Mike. Yeah, you've a lot of people don't know, you co-wrote a lot of the, the huge hits uh, that Buddy had, and uh, I'm wondering, there's, I'm looking at, you know, the, the documentation, Norman Petty, uh, who produced a lot of the, the Buddy Holly records, he's also credited as a co-writer on many, many Buddy Holly songs. Did Norman Petty co-write these songs? Uh, well, I was listening to uh, Heartbeat, and uh, I, I, it just made me think about while I was sitting there listening. Like, I think Buddy uh, Bob Montgomery and, uh, and Norman Petty wrote Heartbeat, and uh, there's, you can definitely tell the Norman Petty influence, and, and Norman Petty was a good musician and a good songwriter. Uh, I can't remember exactly, but the piddly pat, uh, things like that. Uh-huh. You know how true love thrills me. 
I mean, Buddy and I just didn't write songs like with piddly pat, you know. <laughs> so that's the. So he actually did uh, did write the songs. He didn't just put his name on. Well, uh, that, he had never heard that'll be the day when we came into the studio and recorded it. But uh, uh, when the contract came, his name was on it. So uh, you know, I just I tell the truth these days because he's going to slap me. You know? but, <laughs> uh, and and Buddy and I wrote "Not Fade Away" and. Uh, which My name didn't appear on that, which I've always been real sad about. Yeah, that song's only been covered a million times. Yeah. Now. Yeah, uh, that'll be the day Peggy Sue you, you co-wrote, uh, Look at Me, Well, All Right, uh, a lot of big Buddy Holly songs. Uh, can you explain in, you know, 30 seconds what song publishing means and, and what how that all works? Oh, so there's a uh, song publishing started back when publishing meant printing because of... Uh, 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 like a Scott Joplin's day, or, or back in the old days, like how you promoted songs was uh, got people to sing them on old minstrel shows or something like that. But the publishing company owns the copyright, and they get half the money, and the writer gets half the money. And so, uh, and used to they published, they printed the music to send it around to different shows and to different radio stations as that evolved, and then to TV shows. And uh, so the publishing just uh, he he manages the song. And gives the writer half of what he makes. And so did you guys get to hold on to your publishing rights here? No. <laughs> so Norman Petty managed to hold on to the publishing rights. And he actually sold them to uh, Paul McCartney in about 75 or 76 or something like that. That's interesting. So on a lot of these songs, Paul McCartney makes a, a larger share than you do. But that's right. That's, that's incredible. <laughs> and, uh, but it, it couldn't happen to a better guy. I guess so. And he's really done a lot to, to promote uh, that, that body of music as he well. He has. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm, I would say he's probably one of the most honest publishers you could find as well, <laughs> because a lot of people have to worry about getting their royalties. He's not going to nickel and dime you. That's right. Yeah. That's uh, right. We, I talked to George Tomsko uh, a couple months ago, and he sort of said Norman Petty was a peculiar guy, but a talented guy, and always did write you know, by the fireballs. I talked to Sonny Curtis a few months ago, and he sort of said... Not you know, not my favorite guy. You know, don't, didn't have a lot of good things to say about him. Where, where does Norman Petty stand? He's, he's a, a figure with a, a lot of controversy around him. Well, uh, I think every piece of a puzzle is necessary to make something work. And uh, like I mentioned, that'll be the day, buddy. And I just rented the studio. We went in there and recorded that'll be the day for a demo to send a roulette in New York. And uh, Norman Petty set up the microphones. He had a good studio. Had good equipment. And uh, it always sort of irritated me that Norman Petty said he found a diamond in the rough because we had a song written. We had the, we knew how we wanted it. We had our people. You know, Norman Petty didn't add anything but the engineering on that yeah. and, and the studio on that song. And but all of a sudden he was producer. You know, when when it was successful, I don't think he liked rock and roll at the time. But when it was successful, he was the producer of it. And. But it was thanks to him. He had to. But if he wasn't, if it wasn't for Norman Petty, uh, you know, it wouldn't have happened. And he was very talented. And uh, uh, but putting your names on, and we knew nothing about publishing. He said we're going to publish this. And after a couple of years, buddy, or after like a year, buddy, and I were talking to him. But he said, "What about our publishing company?" And now these are uh, true words, as much as I can tell you. Norman Petty said, "Well, there's too many hits in there now, boys. You can't afford to buy in." <laughs> it was our songs. Yeah. So there's my feelings about Norman oh. Petty. He's very talented and, uh, uh, you know, he's a likable guy. But uh, that's a, yeah, I'm, um, and we're lucky because a lot of people got uh, no credit and no songwriting and no, uh, you know, no royalties. So. Yeah, that is true. That was sort of a commonplace thing for it was, someone. Yeah. You just would get it all taken from you. Yeah. Strange. I'm very happy that uh, to be, uh, I mean, we were lucky and uh, 
but it's, it's, I just said to you what I truthfully thought about Norman Petty, and yeah. you know, I always, I never did fail to get along with Norman. Okay. Well, when they when Buddy first got signed, they sent him to Nashville to to record, and he made some great records there, but no hits. Uh, do you think they just didn't know really what to do with rock and roll, so they just you know said send you guys down to Nashville? Uh, I don't know, Mike. It's uh, I didn't like those records particularly as good as the. Uh, the ones we cut later. I, I played on one of those Nashville sessions. He did three down here, and uh, I was in, in high school for the first one. Then I was somewhere in. Uh, we cut that'll be the day, but it just didn't have the same feel. And uh, and I, and probably Decker Records, which was pretty much a country label. Mm. Um, they didn't. I don't think they probably knew where to sell uh, or how to get that kind of records played. But so, I don't know. So when you finally found Norman Studio. Uh, and was it was Norman producing the records? Were you usually bringing an already arranged song to him? Like that'll be the day. Uh, that'll be the day was uh, already all done and looking for someone to love. Like like the first four things we cut uh, were, and then it start. Then Norman Petty did actually start producing. Why don't we do this and want to take it again? And you know he he sort of took over and uh, which and he found songs for us mm-hmm. and uh, so he did actually end up producing songs. Okay. And like I say, if you listen to. Uh, 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 take your time, for instance. Yeah, is that a cardboard box? What are you uh, doing? Yeah, there's a cardboard box that's, on there. <laughs> that's what I thought. And so, let's a song like "Take Your Time" or "Well All Right" that has that sort of cymbal thing, or Peggy Sue with the the incredible tom toms throughout the song. Are those are these records that were cut in an hour, a day, a week? Oh, uh, Peggy Sue is probably recorded in uh, fifteen minutes, <laughs> and we sort of went through it twice. Oh, but uh, the well, our right, just a similar, and that was another good, uh, a good thing about Norman. He would let you try things, and he'd record it and see what it sounded like, and let you listen to it. Say, do you like that? And uh, but uh, the like, take your time. That's that's on a commercial now, and I I couldn't remember when somebody said, hey, take your time in a, on a Visa commercial, which. Hmm. Which would pay pretty nicely, and I said, "Well, let me go look and see, because you know what I wrote has nothing to do with what my name is on." Ah. And uh, but anyway, I remember uh, when we were working on that song, Betty and I said, uh, "Heartstrings will sing like a string of twine." What is that? We didn't like that's not rock and roll lyrics to us, you know. So that's that was Norman's lines. But anyway, I went and looked, and my name wasn't on that song. But anyway, uh, he your cardboard box and all that, and. and uh, he has good recording equipment and really was a good engineer and and you know wrote some some of the songs. Well, tell me about uh, co-writing these songs. That mostly co-written with Buddy Holly. Those early Buddy Holly songs. Did you guys sit down? Was it while you you know backstage at gigs? Where did you write the songs? How did it work? Uh, well, the first one that Buddy and I wrote was "That'll Be the Day," and I had a, a big bedroom with a piano and uh, sort of twice the size of a normal bedroom where our house had been added on to. I don't know why it was big, but anyway, we, I usually left my drum set up there and had a piano. And we never did find a piano player. Glenn D didn't want to play with us back in '56. He wanted to do, he wanted to play like Roger Williams, <laughs> but uh, and he could too. <laughs> anyway, uh, we we rehearsed a lot. Or pra- now we didn't rehearse. We practiced, and we were practicing one day, and we'd seen that John Wayne movie, and uh, and Buddy was just sitting on dunk dunk dunk. He said, "Well, to write a song." And I said, "That'll be the day," because John Wayne had said that a bunch in a movie. Mm. And uh, so he said, that'll yeah, be the day. And so we like about 30 minutes, we had a song. And then we might be riding around in the car, and I'd be driving the baby playing the guitar, because I didn't play guitar at all at the time. And, uh, you know, we'd just start you know, making up some words, and he'd, uh, he did most of the, the melodies. Hmm, interesting. Uh, you, did you have any idea that 
any inkling that these songs would be in Visa commercials 50 years later. Yeah, not the <laughs> least. And, uh, yeah, I, I proved, uh, my folks included, said this thing is not going to last. You know, you better, yeah. you better get back to college and have something to fall back on. And I'm, I'm totally amazed that... Uh, I hadn't thought about that lab, but being a Visa commercial yeah. 50 years later, I certainly wouldn't have thought that. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, the band did a lot of touring all over the world, really. A lot of USA touring, uh, Australia, the UK, uh, a lot of those package shows. Was that as much fun as it seemed like it would have been? Uh, the package shows were great fun. The first one we did was uh, sort of every rock and roller that... Uh, you know, they had a hit record. It was on the first two. It was like 22 acts. You know, and it changed back and forth because the tour was three, three and a half months long, I think. Yeah. But like Fats Domino and Chuck Berry and Jerry Lee Lewis. No, Jerry Lee Lewis wasn't on that particular tour, but the Everly Brothers and Eddie Cochran and Buddy Knox. And, just, and I mean, that was like a, like a rock and roll heaven for us because we we were big fans of all those people. Yeah. The Drifters and Laverne Baker. And, and every night we were on, we rode the bus with them and... and uh, uh, we could go out and watch them, and but we watched every show because we loved rock and roll. That and, just sounds like yeah, to die for. And did you guys get an education in drinking and women and everything like that? Yeah, you uh, were teenagers. I never did find enough out about women. But I, got, <laughs> I got a drinking lesson or two, and, and how to play four, five, six, and uh, all kinds of uh, games of chance. <laughs> how to lose your per diem quickly to that's right. To rock I wish I had per diem back then. <laughs> yeah, that was it was great fun. And and when the first time we went to England, uh, we actually got to play about thirty minutes. It was, it was a variety show, and there's a bunch of people on that. But the, the, there was no rock and roll. It was like a big band, fourteen piece band, or maybe eighteen. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, and pop music singers and comedian, a comedian named oh I can't remember his name now. I know it, but I can't remember. But anyway, we uh, we like sort of closed the show because we'd had a couple of records that did good in England, and we got to play thirty minutes, which was great because normally on those package shows you did. Uh, I think we'd gotten up to where we did like four songs or something. We started out just doing one song. That'll be the day. Oh, that too. So. That's an amazing experience. There's a lot of great uh, film of the band on uh, Ed Sullivan's show. You did that a number of times. Was that a riot? I mean, your parents must have at that point thought, well, this is something. You're on TV. Oh, yeah, they were. I don't think my parents had a TV. Yeah, they had a TV at the time, but they didn't get that channel, so they had to go somewhere <laughs> to cause CBS, I think, before Ed Sullivan was on. That's amazing. But anyway, that was, that was a big deal for yeah. us and our parents and uh, uh, the the crickets really, uh, you know, the crickets with Buddy Holly didn't last that long. Uh, Buddy met his uh, future wife Maria Elena and proposed to her the first day he met her, I believe. And, mo- uh, and mo- I, I didn't know about that. That sounds kind of like a movie to me. That <laughs> might be true, but I don't know. <laughs> sounds like baloney. Uh, he moved to New York City, uh, and I, I, you know, there's different stories, but I guess the band wasn't too happy about that idea. Well, uh, we actually the last tour we did was. Uh, in, in the fall of 58 and uh, we had actually all talked about moving to New York City and and doing our own because you know, all the issues like publishing we by that time we'd figured out what publishing meant and and that we we weren't uh, you know progressing as much as we could hmm. so all of us I say that us Buddy and Joe B Malden and myself we're all going to move to New York and I'd gotten married in the meantime and uh, well I won't go through all that, but it's it's just not as easy to get along with your uh, with your group if you got two ladies involved. <laughs> so I'll just put it like that. Gotcha. The wives didn't get along so good. Well, uh, yeah, just 
Oh, and so we sat, Joby and I decided to stay in Texas, and, and Buddy and Joby and I sat in front of Norman Petty Studio, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, and discussed it. And Buddy said, man, you know, I don't know if it's going to work out, but if it doesn't, you know, if y'all are not happy doing because we were going to get another singer and just be, he said, you guys be the cricket sound, just work as Buddy Holly. Hmm. And if it doesn't work out, well, we'll get back together. And Waylon Jennings told me years later that uh, Buddy said he was going to call us for the next, uh, for his next tour after that winter dance party. He, was, he wanted to go back to England. Hmm. And one Joby and I go with him. So let me ask you this: he, in New York City, he recorded "Raining in My Heart," "True Love Ways," "Doesn't Matter Anymore." Uh, th- those three records. I mean, it must have been some consolation to see that he made th- such amazing music without the crickets as well. <laughs> well, that was uh, that was why we were still a group, and we were there. They didn't let Joby and I play on it, but we were there. Oh, really? Uh, and it, you know that we did. He did those at the Pythian Temple. But Buddy always going to make good music no matter what. Like he recorded early in the morning one time. Uh, we'd finished the tour and and uh, he was uh, I think he was driving back from New York maybe and uh, and Joe B and I flew home. But anyway, he found that song early in the morning and recorded it with you know just a New York studio band. Now I was still it's a great record. So uh, hmm. uh, Buddy Holly was good regardless. Yeah, but, uh, he he uh, he passed away in 1959. Was it a complete shock? Oh, it definitely still is. Yeah. He's, like you said, he was your best friend, and you really, at this point, were still really young men. Oh, I was uh, I was 20 yeah. at the time. So. It must have just uh, been crazy. How long did it take to sort of pull out of that funk? Uh, well, there's still a bit of a funk around over that. <laughs> you know, it's just, I mean, I, I, I really regret that, uh, you know, that, that it worked out just like it did in I've, I always wonder, you know, it, it's strange how many groups do break up when they're successful and, and they're at, uh, uh, you know, like like personalities and I don't know what all gets involved, but... Uh, uh, it's hard to, it's very hard. People don't quite understand how hard it is to be creative in a group setting. <laughs> oh, exactly. And be, get business involved. It's very, you know, money, it's, it's impossible. And, yeah, sit in the back of a car for, you know, hours on end. Uh, the Crickets ended up uh, making some incredible solo records, and we heard a bunch of them just there. And, oh, before we get to that, tell me about the the Jerry Ivan Allison solo records. When were they made? Real is that real Wild Child? Is that the same song that uh, you recorded later? It's just the crazy underwater version. Uh, well, now the backside. There's that long tour I was talking about. The first tour we went on. There's a fellow named Sam Hurt played trombone. He talked like that just to be funny, you know, his lips. And so uh, a lot of us would talk like Sam me hurt. And uh, so we, and that record I made was a joke because I'm a drummer. And, you know, I can't speak for everybody. Levon Helms is definitely an exception. But most of the drummers I know don't sing too well, and I'm right in that class. But uh, we were in Australia in 58, and uh, Jerry Lee Lewis and Paul Anka, and there was a fellow there named Johnny O'Keefe. He had a number one record uh, called Wild One. And so Jerry Lee actually recorded it, too. He learned it on that tour. But uh, we came back and and, uh, and did the song, and uh, somehow we figured, I don't know how I ended up singing it. But it's more like a joke. Than, <laughs> and, I, and I wish I had a joke that sold that many records these days. But <laughs> it got somewhere in the charts, not uh, maybe top 50, I don't know, but some, you know, somewhere mid-charts. Right. It's and, in chart, yeah. It's a rare, it's a rare, uh, rare item. The, the original copies of that. 
Yeah, this uh, I had a boxer gym. I think my folks threw those out. Oh, you're kidding me! <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not our boy. <laughs> I was going to send you my address. So, uh, uh, so you guys put out some great records. Uh, 1959. Uh, I think the first single the Crickets put out, uh, "Love Made a Fool," "Love's Made a Fool of You." Right. Uh, you know, uh, and then you co-wrote uh, "More Than I Can Say," which was covered uh, pretty quickly by Bobby V, and then Leo Sayer late in the '80s. Uh, "Baby My Heart," a big hit in the UK, and through this whole time, lots of people are passing through the band and passing through the folks who are recording uh, as the crickets through the whole time it seems like through the whole history you're the only guy who's always been a cricket uh yeah I've, i just couldn't give it up <laughs> sonny curtis is well he, sonny was in the army uh for a period there in in the early 60s and right. joe b Mullen was in the army and then uh, joe b decided he didn't want to tour and uh, we have had uh, been more crickets than our dogs got fleas. <laughs> yeah, song I, Glenn Campbell sings on some of the stuff. Uh, Glenn Campbell sang on uh, uh, "Please Don't Ever Change" and "I'm Not a Bad Guy." Right, uh, that, that was a period when a fellow named Jerry Naylor was singing lead with us. And, they're amazing records. I mean, I'm not a bad guy. We just heard. Uh, it seems like in, you guys, sort of without Buddy Holly, were sort of trying to find an identity and trying out lots of different things. Is that accurate? That's that's accurate, Mike. Because we we even got into surfing, but not very well. Right, right. Uh, when um, Sonny Curtis came in with the song "I Fought the Law." Did you go? Oh, this is a special song, or was it just another one? Uh, when we we uh, first record we did after we left, uh, we split up with Norman Petty soon after Buddy's death, and uh, we had a deal with Coral Records. We were driving to New York uh, to do an album called In Style with the Crickets, mm. and that's when when Sonny and I wrote uh, More Than I Can Say, and we did that on the album. I think we might have gone to California. I can't remember where we were, but Sonny had written that song. Uh, as a country song, because uh, he he was more into country music as he was growing up than than I was, but uh, he was just singing that song. You know, we had a guitar in the car on the way to New York, and, and uh, so that's a good one. We'll record that when we got to New York, and uh, I, it didn't. Uh, I mean, I always liked the song, but it was a lot more special than I recognized. And then Bobby Fuller, of course, they, they sort of did our version of it. Yeah. And uh, it was a big hit. And I thought, hmm. Yeah, a few years later. Sure, that's, that's, that's an awful good song. It, it's a <laughs> and song. The more it's on Super Bowl and commercials, the better it gets. Yeah, it's just like every three years, somebody puts that song in a commercial. You know, yeah. it's just amazing. It is. It's, it's, it's Sonny's most recorded song, I think. It's it's one of those songs, yeah, that rock groups can't can't stay away from. You know, they just have to take a try on it. You know, <laughs> yeah, right. it's, it's just amazing. Uh, you switched to guitar in the band. Uh, you started working a lot, doing a lot of sessions, including uh, Everly Brothers' "Till I Kissed You," which sounds like you again. It's a sort of unusual drumming for for rock and roll. Uh, Let it be me. Eddie Cochran, a few things. Johnny Burnett, a few things. Um, Bobby V, including the record you guys made with Bobby V. Uh-huh. Uh, is there anyone else that that you were doing sessions with around that time? Um. Not anything very notable. Uh, did quite a few sessions. Snuff Garrett, a friend of ours from Texas, who, who we'd known when he was a disc jockey, uh, moved out. Was well, he was producing like Bobby V and uh, uh, Bobby V and Johnny Burnett, and he was in on the. Well, that was actually the last session that uh, Eddie Cochran did. Saying I played on that, like uh, Cut Across Shorty and Three Steps to Heaven, I think. right? And yeah. Cherish Memories mm. is the third one he did, but. Uh, At this point, did you have a reputation as a guy who could provide sort of a, a creative take on rock and roll drumming? Uh, 
I don't maybe behind my back, but I didn't know it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. Uh, like you said, Jerry Naylor came in. Glenn Harden came in the band. Uh, I'm not a bad guy. Don't ever change. Again, a lot of these were big hits in the UK. The Bobby V record, I think, went to number two in the UK. The album. Uh-huh. Uh huh. You were an influence. Uh, the crickets uh, after Buddy Holly. I think on a lot of those UK bands of the early '60s, like you know the Searchers, the Beatles, uh, who covered "Don't Ever Change." I think on their uh, in those BBC sessions. Uh, do you do you feel that? Uh, well, Paul McCartney actually told us one time if it wasn't for the crickets, there wouldn't be any Beatles. <laughs> and of course, uh, there was groups like the Hollies, which the name of the sister. There was right. actually a group called the Allisons, oh. which uh, covered some of our records and. They probably sold about the same amount as ours, I'll have to <laughs> which di- wasn't very many. I'll have to dig those up. Uh, 1964, you guys made a record that had a lot of Beatles covers on it. What did you think of the Beatles? Uh, we loved them from yeah. the very start. I got a, uh, a letter from them on the wall from 1963. Sonny mentioned it some TV. Sonny Curtis mentioned it on, the, I guess it's a 60, a late 62 tour that... Uh, the Love Me Do was out, and he said, boy, uh, he was, we're doing some TV show, and uh, so he said, boy, the Beatles sure got a good record out, and, and the Beatles did the TV show later, and and the guy said, all the crickets said they liked your record, so they wrote us a letter in January of 63. Uh, <laughs> then we've always been big fans. Wow. And still, still are big fans. Yeah, why not? Uh, eventually, you sort of got sick of L.A. and moved back to Clovis and, and made a couple more records, almost getting a little bit psychedelic. Uh, Those yeah, are- Tommy also came came and played on some of that stuff, and, and Buzz Case and I were writing songs like Now, uh, now Hear This. Yeah, we got to get together. Yeah, we were trying to get that English mod sound. Yeah, there's a little bit of like a early Rolling Stones feel to some of those things. <laughs> it, it didn't work out, though. Yeah. And then the crickets, the crickets sort of continued after the Liberty Days were over and, you know, made a bunch of records and, uh, you know, the, the different guys sort of, again, coming in and out of the group. But mostly it's been sort of a core group. These are guys you've known since you were little kids. It's must oh, be- Glenn Harden, yeah, he and I went to school together, and Joe B and I, of course, did, and Sunday went to school down the road. But uh, it's, it's amazing that people, uh, it's, it's fun to play with people you've been playing playing music with for 50 years. <laughs> yeah, that's just, few people can, can talk about that experience. I saw that the Crickets were just playing in Branson, Missouri. I've never been there. What is that whole scene like? Uh, Branson is just a great place for entertainment. It is, uh, it's just a pleasant town full of full of friendly people. And we played the American, uh, American Dick Clark's American Bandstand Theater. Hmm. And somebody told me one time that when, uh, uh, which was kind of a fun deal because it's, uh, that his show started network in 1957, which is 50 year anniversary too. But uh, I've heard that the first song he played when it, he went on ABC Network was "That'll Be the Day." Mm-hmm. That was right when that was happening. So, mm-hmm. uh, you, but you, anyway, that theater's fine. And Andy Williams has got a theater there, and Mo Bandy. I can't. Uh, you know, I've I've only been there like three times, and we were there a week this time. So but you, there's just more entertainment and, and uh, you know tourist stuff to do and. Uh, we took a little short, you know, like a 20-mile train ride just for my wife and went with me. We were there for a week, so we did stuff like that. But it's, you know, vacation and good music and it's just good vibes. And so you guys just played, you play one show a day there? We played one show in the afternoon at, at the theater. And uh, Johnny Preston, you remember mm-hmm. Johnny Preston? Sure, yeah. Johnny Bear. Uh, we played with him and a fellow named Ray Anthony, who's, I think, been in some 
Essen plays. It, it played uh, the part of Richie Valens. And uh, uh, Bill Medley's daughter, McKenna Medley, uh, she was on the show really good. Then the night show was uh, Chris Montez, Brian Highland, Fabian, and Bobby V. Yeah, I think that Bill's been playing there for years. Yeah. Uh-huh. Did you see that? It's, uh, yeah, it's great, too. <laughs> it really is a good show. Bobby V, we, we still work with him and, and his kids a lot. But... Uh, and Brian Highland and Chris Montana's just a good show, but uh, I think they sort of uh, rotate with uh, Bill Medley and uh, Paul Revere and the Raiders. Right, right. Yeah, Chris Montez, one of my favorite '60s acts. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, I think you backed up George Jones once. Is that is that? In, that's right. Uh, in, in 1956, uh, in fact, I had to quit college over there. I was going to Texas Tech, and. Uh, I don't know how it worked out, but we, uh, Buddy and a fellow named Buddy Holly and a fellow named Don Guess and I got a call to back up a, a country music tour like through the South. It's like a 14-day tour. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, Hank Thompson was the main star, and he had his band, but uh, it was a big package show. But everybody else, uh, we backed up like George Jones, Mitchell Torrock, Hank Lachlan, Justin... Justin Tubb, Ernest Tubb's son. Oh, and you were just teenagers. Just teenagers. Yeah, I, was, uh, I would be 16, yeah. Uh, George Jones, another. You've really played with all the greats. <laughs> George Jones was great then, too. <laughs> and, and bad to take a drink on that particular time. <laughs> uh, well, you've sort of got to wrap this up. I'm talking to Jerry Allison of the Crickets. Jerry, I've got the song Peggy Sue uh, uh queued up here. Uh, you were married to the woman the song's about, right? That's right. That's my first ex-wife. <laughs> How many have you got? Oh, just, just, just one ex. Just the one. <laughs> and uh, you got, again, you were just kids when you wrote this uh, song. Do you remember writing it? I read, Buddy had a song started called Cindy Lou. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, it's hard to remember that many years ago, but the best I remember, we were riding around in his 55 Oldsmobile and uh, he was playing the guitar and said, hey, listen to this. And he has like, if you knew, Cindy Lou, sort of a cha-cha rhythm, uh, Latin rhythm kind of a song. Mm-hmm. And I thought, man, uh, you know, like, uh, let's change it to Peggy Sue, who I had dated some and known since junior high school. And so we changed it. And then we got in the studio. We actually uh, you know, played it a couple of times and, and put the paradiddle, the, the tom-tom thing, and took it out of the Latin field. And, um Went in the studio and recorded it. I uh, we did two takes. And That's amazing. Uh, do you still write songs? Uh, not very much. I think uh, uh, the, the next project we have is writing some songs with Nancy Griffith. Sure. And uh, doing a, a sort of a 50th anniversary project, and uh, which would be great fun because she writes great songs and is a great singer. And, uh, so we're, we're looking forward to doing that. Hmm. And uh, you still like playing live? Still like the road? Oh, it's great fun. And do, you, do I hear some grandkids running around back there? No, not around here. I have never grown up enough to have any kids. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good for you. <laughs> well, then you have a noisy cat or something back there. <laughs> oh, probably, probably my chair squeaking here. But, uh, uh, well, uh, you've lived an amazing life, and I'm so happy that you're still making music. Oh, well, thank you much, Mike. Yeah, just really, just just great to hear the real story behind uh, so much of this stuff. Uh, Jerry, if you ever come through New York, please come on and, and drop by. Would love to. And you mentioned uh, in, in an email, I've been meaning to email you back about, uh, you said you had a, a copy of a tape with Roger Miller and Thumbs Carlisle. Oh, yeah. Uh, I was... Uh, I was at a New Year's Eve party this year with or this past New Year's with uh, Ralph Emery, who was the host of that show. Right, and he and I were talking about that show, 
and uh, that was uh, must have been '66 because we were just fixing to do the Roger Miller NBC show. And I've, I, I did see a copy that I don't have one. I'd love to have a copy. I'll send you one. What Jerry's talking about is uh, it's Ralph Emery doing a local morning show in Nashville, and uh, Roger Miller's the guest, and you're playing drums with, with Roger at that time. Right. And it seems like, I'm going to guess everybody is hopped up on goofballs or something. I mean, um, people are very alert for that hour of the morning, and, <laughs> and Roger is just like I don't a, know what to, I think we were a little bit above the weather. <laughs> And it's just, an ama- I mean, it's live television in the best sense. It's just an amazing, amazing uh, television program. Yeah, I will send you that. That'd be great. How long did you play with Roger Miller? Uh, about two years, yeah. 66 and 67. That's a, I must have been a lot of fun. Oh, I, you know, he's the famous guy I ever was on the road with. Or maybe yeah. the famous guy I ever knew, and he hung up people like Richard Pryor, and that was really a hoot. Oh, boy. You you you, you played with everybody, every genius, basically. Oh, well, thanks. <laughs> And I enjoyed every lick, too. Yeah. Well, that's great. Jerry, let's hear uh, Peggy Sue, and uh, we'll be in touch. All right, great. Thanks. Thanks, thanks so much. That is some uh, number one hit music there from the great Sonny Curtis, and he joins us on the telephone. Sonny, good morning. Uh, how are you? I'm doing fine. Good morning to you. Uh, are you in Tennessee? Is that where you live? I live, uh, yeah, west of Nashville, about the old 35, 40 miles, something like that. All right, so you can keep an eye on, on things, I guess? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, we, we sort of live uh, in the country. Uh, we're uh, we're real real close to the edge of Nashville and Home Depot and that sort of thing. I like to go to Home Depot just to kind of walk around and smell of the place, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Home Depot's a trip. Uh, you know, we, for the for the past 45 minutes, we've been playing some uh, some music that you have some hand in one or the other. And we've heard from Joan Jett and Bobby Fuller and Johnny Duncan and Buddy Knox and Buddy Holly and Annie Williams and Harry Nielsen and the Crickets and we heard from Gary Lewis and the Playboys, the Camps, uh, Nat Stuckey, a, a lot of people. And the thing that I've kind of wedged in between all these guys is is a lot of tracks, mostly off of your first uh, two records, the first of Sonny Curtis and the Sonny Curtis style. Uh, you know, I'd always known of you as a songwriter and, you know, great songs. And I know that you had an, uh, you know, an affiliation with Buddy Holly. But when I found those two records, I mean, those two records are both chock full of amazing songs. And it seems to me... We were talking about this on the air earlier. Those songs kind of fill a little void. You know, there's kind of, uh, they're, they're not just straight up pop songs. There's a little bit of introspection, but they're not kind of drippy, late 60s, way too, uh, you know, soul-bearing, introspective, you know. And they're right in the middle there, and, and that's what I love about them, you know. Well, well, thank you. Uh, you. You just said a lot, and did all those people cut my songs? My goodness! Uh, oh, they did. I mean, Al Hurt, Albert Lee, Bing Crosby cut your songs. Bobby Goldsboro, Bobby V, Brian Hyland. I'm trying to think people I didn't mention. Uh, the Clash, Chet Atkins. Uh, I always like to throw in the Dead Kennedys. The, I think. the Dead Kennedys. Why not? Uh, Gary Lewis, J.J. Kale, who just passed away. Waylon Jennings, Jack Jones, uh, Johnny Darrell, Johnny Duncan, Johnny Rivers, Kirsty McCall, the King. Mark Lindsay, the Poppy family, Ricky Nelson, Roy Orbison, Leo Sayer, of course, the Shadows, Webb Pierce, the Wilburn Brothers. I mean, the list is pretty long. Well, um, that's um, 
you know, I'm I'm glad you have it in front of you. I couldn't have thought of all those people. Well, you know, what? I'll tell you, that I made that list of just the good ones. You know, those are all the good covers. There's a lot of people who did bad versions of the songs. I didn't even include them. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, well. I mean, I love those two records. We're, we're you know, that mid '60s time. I mean, there was that kind of gentle on my mind, and the Joe South thing was kind of happening. And there were people who were still writing pop songs, but they were beginning to be in, a little more introspective. I mean, was that where you were coming from, or did that just happen naturally? Well, uh, whatever I did, I did naturally. Uh, I always. Uh uh, I had a hard time writing for people. I uh, always wanted to write a song that I thought would be good for me, and uh, and if it happened, it happened. Uh, but uh, as far as I, you know, I have done it. I have sat and said, uh, you know, uh, I'm gonna uh, by request from people like Snuff Garrett, who uh, produced, um, you know, Gary Lewis and Bobby V and people like that. Said I want a song. For them, and I want it to have this flavor, and I've done it, but they've never been sort of my favorites. Uh, <laughs> I like uh, I like to do it naturally. That's very interesting. Uh, go going way back to the beginning. Uh, you played uh, fiddle as a as a young young guy, and uh, you and Buddy Holly, I guess, growing up together, you, you start a first band where you are, I believe, the fiddle player, and Buddy Holly is. A, a banjo player and guitar player, and I'm going to assume this is just straight-up country music. Well, it was. When we met, uh, we were like sophomores in high school, or, or maybe even a little earlier than that. It was, uh, um, and a fellow named Bob Montgomery, uh, you may know his name. He, sure. Uh, was, he became a, a big record producer and music publisher in Nashville. He and Bobby Goldsboro had a house of gold music, and they published some great hits. Uh, but he was uh, in the mix. He and Buddy went to to Lubbock High School. I went to a smaller school down south, about thirty miles, and a little town called Meadow. It's a farming community. And when we first met, uh, I played fiddle and I played guitar. So I played um, lead guitar on some songs and fiddle on the other ones. And you know, and there was a guy named Dave Stone in Lubbock had a KDAV, which is a straight country station. And every Sunday afternoon, he had a live show up all afternoon, like uh, called the Sunday Party. And uh, if if you had the guts enough to get up and pick, man, you had a microphone and you went all over the South Plains. So we always went out and did that show, and it was it was pretty much straight country. We were big bluegrass fans and uh, uh, contemporary country, you know, like Ernie Stubb and. Hank Williams and you know and, and I was a huge Chet Atkins fan and so uh, that uh, that's pretty well where we were coming from when when we met. So I mean at a certain point I mean because your your earliest recordings with uh, Sonny the ones that uh, I guess it was the the two tones, or sometimes it's called the three tones. The, the three well, tunes. I'll tell you the story of how that sure. happened. Uh, uh, Buddy and Don Guess, uh, who played uh, the uh, bass, like upright bass, uh, we were we were sort of Elvis clones, and I played the Scotty Moore type uh, guitar because, as I said, it, uh, Scotty played kind of a Chet Atkins flavor, and that was right up my alley. And uh, we, uh, Buddy got a deal at DECA, on DECA in Nashville, and we drove from Lubbock to Nashville and recorded uh, with uh, at the, can you imagine, Grady Martin, the great Grady Martin played rhythm and I played lead. <laughs> and uh, 
uh, and Buddy, as good a guitar player as he was, they didn't let him sing. Oh, and Bradley was the producer, and Buddy just stood over in the in the uh, corner and sang. Uh, there's a great picture of him just standing there uh, at the mic without a guitar. And uh, Buddy Harmon was the drummer. Uh, Jay, I was still in school. He couldn't get loose. And Buddy Harmon was the drummer. So but, uh, to, to go forward, we got a gig picking on a tour with uh, Farron Young and Wanda Jackson and Sonny James and Tommy Collins. And we opened the show with our new record, which was Blue Days, Black Nights, and uh, the backside was Love Me. And uh, we it opened in Oklahoma City, and uh, Buddy said, man, we need some uniforms, you know. So we got there in the afternoon and went to a local haberdasher and got some white pants and a blue shirt and an orange shirt. <laughs> and uh, we, uh, uh, of course, Johnny Cash's band was called the Tennessee Two. We said, uh, what are we going to call ourselves? And so we figured, ah, we'll call ourselves the Two-Tones after our outfit, you know, <laughs> the uh, uh, the white pants and the blue shirt, et cetera. And so uh, when the record came out, the the next record after Blue Days of Black Nights, the uh, the label, I guess, they couldn't figure out what the two-tones were, so they called us the three-tunes. <laughs> and so that's how that started. Now, that story went on a long time, but that's the story <laughs> of the three-tunes. The two-tones or the three-tunes. Uh, I mean, how did you guys consider those first records that you guys made? Did you say this is rock and roll music? Well, we... Uh, uh, we didn't quite know what to think. We were young and naive, and we thought uh, um, um, erroneously, of course, that uh, when those records came out, that we would be in Elvisville quicker than you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Man, we would. Uh, we figured, uh, hey, this is it, man. We're on the Decca. We're we're going to be big stars. And of course, it didn't take too long for us to figure out that uh, that that's not the way it works. <laughs> I mean, but one minute you guys were in South Texas, you know, with banjo and fiddle in a band, and then the next minute uh, it was rock and roll. Was it just simply Elvis Presley? I mean, was that the only difference in the world? I mean, is that what happened? It, it just was that, lo- that, that mostly was the catalyst for us. We uh, we went to see Elvis uh, before Elvis really got so huge. He came to Lubbock. He was on the Louisiana ride he came to lubbock like four times and then it was too small for him to come to but we got to know him and we even played on shows with him and uh, of course when he came out uh on stage uh and he had on uh, i'll never forget uh and that, that was january the uh sixth or seventh i believe of 1955 he came out on stage he had on uh, uh red pants and I'm talking about red and an orange uh, jacket and white buck shoes. And, man, he was loud. And, <laughs> but uh, we, uh, uh, it turned our heads around immediately. We started booking out the next day. And as I said, I, I played kind of uh, like Chet Atkins to begin with. Uh, and so Scotty Moore's licks just came naturally to me. Mm. Um, but he had a Fender Telecaster, and I had a D28 Martin. And... He played my uh, Martin, and I played his Telecaster, and we we looked out to uh, uh, being a rock and roll band the next day. Man, it was uh, uh, we fell right into it, and we we uh, we loved rock and roll, and then uh, we uh, by that we got into rhythm and blues, and we started listening late at night uh, to uh, uh, 
uh, KWKH in Shreveport, Stan's record rack. He had uh, um, old rhythm and blues music. We listened to Little Richard and Ray Charles and Lonnie Johnson. Man, I mean, you you name it. Uh, <laughs> Buddy and I, uh, it came on at midnight, but I'd spend the night with Buddy, and we'd go out and sit in the car and listen, man. <laughs> it, it was something else. <laughs> yeah, I think you can hear all that in, in Buddy's music. So I think the tracks that you play on, and I might have it not quite right, Blue Days, Black Nights, Changing All Those Changes, Gonna Sit My Foot Down, Love Me, Midnight Shift, uh, Rockin' Around with Ollie V., uh, baby, won't you come out tonight? Maybe a couple more. We're talking about 1956 for the first. Th- I mean, 1956 is so early for rock and roll. And one of the great things about tracks like that is there's just not that much that could have influenced them that was rock and roll. You know, it had to be an amalgam of all that other stuff, which is partly why it's so. Well, yes, uh, it was. And uh, uh, I think January. I can't ex- exactly recall the date. I have got it uh, written somewhere. But January of 1956, we recorded uh, Blue Days and Black Nights and, I believe, Midnight Shift and Love Me and something else. But uh, <clears throat> uh, we did four songs at Owen Bradley's. Uh, they called it Bradley's Barn. It was just a Quonset hut in, in Nashville. And uh, we recorded those uh, really early but as I said earlier, we were sort of Elvis clones, and uh, and I think that's one of the uh, of the main reasons we uh, we kind of didn't make it right off the bat is because uh, there already was an Elvis. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and uh, so, uh, but uh, I think those uh, you know whatever the influences uh, were, um, we were we were young, and uh, I would have been. Uh, I think 18 or 19 at the time. Uh, <clears throat> we were real young, and we were just on fire, man. We loved music so much, it's n- not even true, you know. Uh, well, when you went down to Nashville, and you go to, to Bradley's Barn and the Quonset Hut, and they're used to cutting, you know, all those amazing country records where those guys would just, you know, Grady Martin and all those guys, and Hank Garland would just come in, and Bob Moore, and just cut, you know, three number one hits in the morning and three uh, more in the afternoon. Oh, you know? yeah. It's just crazy. It's amazing. Uh, and we... Uh, uh, I don't think they quite got us. Yeah. Um, uh, this uh, a fellow named Eddie Crandall that we met. Um, he was a road manager, tour manager for people like Marty Robbins and Hank Snow, and he'd come through Lubbock more than once. And we kind of got to be pals with him. He was responsible for getting Buddy the deal on Decca, oh. and uh, <clears throat> and. Uh, Paul Coyne, I think his, I think he was in New York, was head of DECA at the time, and he kind of got Owen Bradley to produce us, and Owen Bradley was a wonderful fellow, but I, I don't think he was, he kind of got what we were trying to do, and I don't think he was that interested as well. I think, <laughs> I think they just put us in the studio and got Grady Martin and Buddy Harmon to pick along with us, and they just sort of turned on the machine and said, okay. Go for it. <laughs> uh, interesting. You wrote a song called "The Real Buddy Holly Story," and it's it's one of those songs where in the song you talk about writing the song and you talk about how you went to the movies to go see that uh, the Buddy Holly story, and then you wrote the song that sort of clears up some of the facts about the story. It must be sort of frustrating to see history rewritten continually or subject to people's point of view, especially when you were there and you know and people sort of have reduced it to something else. My, my, when Buddy Holly, the, the guy that that we 
that we that the people the memory that sort of collectively has formed of Buddy Holly how much like that is what he was really like um well I'm not sure that uh, I mean there are so many different stories and uh, you know uh, I'm not sure quite how to answer that I know that uh, um the the movie was uh it was a pretty good Hollywood rock and roll movie and uh, uh, Gary Busey didn't really uh, do a very good Buddy Holly. Uh, didn't do him at all. I, I, he did a pretty good uh, Chuck Berry in the movie, <laughs> mm. uh, but Buddy uh, didn't act like that. And of course, uh, what, uh, what always turned me off were the uh, about the movie were the errors. Uh, like, uh, from, for instance, they showed uh, portrayed Mister and Mrs. Holly. Uh, is really kind of being opposed to Buddy Ben in music. Man, they were the biggest fans of not only of Buddy, but all of us. And they were like, get in there and get it, man. I mean, they were on our side, you know. Isn't that funny? And, uh, and also, uh, one of my most unfavorite things about the movie is, uh, of course, they took a lot of license, I guess, uh, when they were making it. But the show Buddy... Uh, who Buddy was a, I mean, he sometimes could be a little bit of a smart aleck, but he was first a gentleman, and they show him in the movie, movie punching out the uh, producer, who would have been, I was present, <laughs> <laughs> the guy would have been Owen Bradley, and the, the, the thing that Buddy would have punched out Owen Bradley is just ludicrous. I mean, <laughs> we were on our toes uh, putting our best manners forward, man. We were... West Texas boys and trying to make a good impression, you know. Like, yeah. Yes, sir, Mr. Bradley, and no, sir, and Mr. Bradley, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and that's just, that turned me off. And uh, I did, uh, they invited us to the uh, premiere of the Buddy Holly story down in uh, in Lubbock, not in Lubbock, I'm sorry, it was in Dallas, it, but eventually went to Lubbock, but it opened in Dallas, and and I left the, the theater, and I started writing the song <laughs> that night, and uh, <laughs> I uh, I didn't finish it. I actually went from uh, from Dallas to uh, L.A. because I was uh, still doing some jingles after I moved to Nashville, and I had a jingle job. And <laughs> hey, a jingle job! <laughs> and uh, we uh, <clears throat> and I went out to L.A. and I finished the song out there. Uh, I want to remind everybody we're talking to Sonny Curtis, and this is WFMU East Orange, WMFU Manhattan, WNYX in Montgomery. Sonny Curtis was on the show, uh, I think, 2007, and we sort of talked about your whole life kind of in chronological order, and I urge folks who sort of are, are interested to check out the archive of that over at WFMU.org and check out Sonny's website at SonnyCurtis.com. Uh, Knight, let's talk about you. That, for a while, you went with Slim Whitman. Uh, he just passed away recently. Uh, we're talking about the... 1960, maybe something like that. Uh, oh, it was 1956. 50, uh, 56. I mean, August of 1956. What kind of shows were those like? And what? I mean, I can't even imagine what uh, what the audiences were like. What the what touring was like? Were you on a bus? Well, no. Um, that uh, it was really strange the way I got that gig. For, for one thing, I uh, I left Buddy. Uh, I left the group. Um, Buddy and I were uh, we were having a bit of friction, uh, you know. Like he he wanted to start uh, playing more lead and wanted to uh, uh, have me start playing more rhythm. And you know how teenage egos are. <laughs> we uh, uh, I said no, no, I'm not I'm not up for that. And I was teaching guitar and selling instruments at Adair Music Company in Lubbock, which is the only 
only music store in town, and a, and a friend of mine who also taught uh, guitar and steel guitar, a, a fellow named Sam Hodge, he uh, uh, went on the road and did some recording with Slim Whitman. And um, he, when uh, uh, Slim Whitman had booked a tour up in the Northwest, and uh, Sam said uh, he needs a guitar player because uh, Slim's regular guitar, a guy named Sugarfoot Collins, his wife was having a baby, and he couldn't make the tour. And so uh, Sam said, you want to go on the road with Slim? And man, oh man, uh, Slim was a big star. I said, sure. So that's how I got that gig. And it didn't last long. It uh, didn't last but one one tour. But uh, it was a very important thing in my ha- life that happened because it was a big star, and it uh, introduced me to uh, the road sort of, uh, I mean, like I'd been on the road a little bit with Holly, but not uh, not in that on that uh, of that nature. And Slim was the nicest guy in the world. And I think, looking back, I think because I would have been 19, and uh, I just turned 19, and I think he was sort of like uh, 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 acted as a bit of a protector of me. Uh, and uh, and it was really nice because uh, I remember on the way to our first gig, which was in Trinidad, uh, Colorado. Uh, Slim had me right up front. He had a big Chrysler, and there were five of us in uh, in the band, and and uh, uh, and we picked up a drummer from the union as we went. But Slim put me up front with him, and he uh, he talked to me like real fatherly, you know, like uh, but really nice. And he asked me like, uh, "What are you? What are your aspirations? What are your goals?" And you know, and, and we talked about music, and uh, and I remember on stage. Uh, one, uh, I kind of knew where I could pick pretty good. I knew where to put my fingers, but a lot of the chord names I didn't know. And you, you know those songs like Indian Love Call and Rosemary and uh, Love Song of the Waterfall, and uh, <clears throat> those songs had chords in them, man. That uh, <laughs> you know minor sevenths and such. And and I and Sam taught me where to put my fingers, and I could do that, but I didn't really know the name of the chords. And sometimes. Uh, I'd kind of get a little confused. And <laughs> one night, I remember it was in Denver. We were playing, and uh, <clears throat> Slim kind of eased over beside me, and he he just smiles and said, "Now don't get nervous." And <laughs> I I just loved old Slim Whitman. He was a good guy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's uh, t- let's go flash forward to uh, you know Buddy Holly dies in '59, and the Crickets sort of re- re- relocate to L.A. and. Uh, start putting out lots of records on Liberty and some uh, some great great early '60s you know LA pop music uh, came out of that with all you know lots of different band members coming in and out and lots of experimenting with styles and, and things like that. What was the scene like in the 1960s? I mean, it was still a, a, some of some of the crickets stuff is is pre Beatles and some of it is post Beatles and you know during that time the LA thing was just kind of exploding you know it was, it, were you guys a part of that scene were you going out to see bands what, well uh, sort of uh I, what happened is uh, um uh, buddy uh, and the other two crickets because i wasn't at the band in the band at that time the other two crickets joe b uh, malden and j.i allison they uh, they decided to split because buddy wanted to live in new york and uh but and Joe B and J I were real young, and they didn't want to live in New York. And Buddy was more of a visionary, and he 
he moved to New York, uh, and also their wives got in the mix all of a sudden. Buddy married Maria Elena, who was uh, a New York uh, girl, and uh, J.I. married Peggy Sue, who was a love of Texas girl. And, uh, uh, you know, I won't say much about that, but when wives <laughs> get in the mix, you know, like uh, there's a bit of influence uh, hmm. <laughs> influencing going on. And uh, so... Uh, the buddy and Joe B decided to stay in Lubbock, and that's when they called me and invited me back into the group. But we were a bit rudderless right after Holly died and didn't really know quite what to do and didn't really have a manager and uh, to tell us, and we were all really young. And uh, uh, actually, the Everly brothers, Don and Phil, gave us a wonderful opportunity. They said, uh, why don't you guys go on the ban- on the road with us and, and be our backup band? Because Don and Phil were having horrible luck at the time because they didn't take a band on the road. They had the unions in these towns. They would book, put them a band together from the local, a local uh, union, musicians union, and, man, they had had some horrible luck, you know, just really a terrible bog down and i'm sure you can imagine mm. uh just you know like uh, those songs you know just having charts written and passing them out to local guys so we went on the road with don and phil and um we did that for oh about a year not quite a year and i got drafted into the army and i spent two years in the army and that's when we had just moved to la uh, and I had to go to the Army. <laughs> and uh, so uh, while I was in the Army, they recorded uh, oh, some songs. Glenn Campbell singing background and Bobby V singing background and, you know, uh, 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 using L.A. musicians to, to help out. And uh, But before I did go into the Army, uh, J.I. and I played on uh, Eddie Cochran's last record, which was uh, uh, Cut Across Shorty and... Uh, uh, three Steps to Heaven and uh, Cherished Memories. Those did, were the three we cut. Did you guys also play on Johnny Burnett record? Um, I wrote a Johnny Burnett. Uh, no, 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 no. I'm sorry. It was a, it was a Bobby V song. J.I. did play on uh, some of those early John. He played the drums on uh, Dreaming, and then he played on... Uh, um, I read last night that you played on Your 16, but I didn't think that... No, no. Uh, uh, he recorded that, I think, while when I, right after I went in the Army. But I was at his first session because his first session was a split session uh, with Bobby V. Because Snuff Garrett brought Bobby V, who was like 18 or something, or 17, he was real young. He brought him from Minnesota, and uh, they uh, went in the studio and split a session, two songs apiece. And... Uh, and uh, I'm trying to think what Johnny Burnett recorded, uh, and I'm I'm having trouble with hmm. titles all of a sudden. Well, in, that hasn't that hadn't been but about like 55 years. Yeah, ago, <laughs> yeah I'm so, it's not yesterday. So in those early days, were you going out to see other bands? Were you taking advantage of that sort of exploding music scene that was happening in L.A.? Or were you guys well, kind of in your Texas cult group? You know? Oh no, yeah, we uh, no, we went out to see other bands. Uh, uh, and um, we got, we got to be real good friends with Johnny Burnett and Darcy Burnett and and Darcy uh, uh, he uh, when we uh, first moved there we lived there for uh, about three months before I left for the army 
and uh, and Darcy Burnett wrote that great song, A Tall Oak Tree, and uh, and we were uh, really good friends with Johnny and Darcy, and and of course uh, Jerry Lee was hot, and when he'd come, I remember he came to town, and uh, and man, we uh, we went out to the club to see him. He put on a great show, of course. And, and he yeah. was crazy. But, <laughs> I mean, he was crazy even back then. <laughs> he was the but, killer. Uh, you, your association with the Everly Brothers would sort of go on and off for a long time. Uh, they did a, a bunch of your songs that uh, that you wrote. They did Walk Right Back, of course, The Collector, I Used to Love You, uh, maybe a couple others. And you played guitar on some of their you know some of their hits on Love is Strange, I think, Until I Kissed You. Uh, and I, I noticed that on some of those sessions, uh, James Burton is playing alongside of you. That must have been, I mean, they always, once they signed to Warner Brothers and started working in L.A., they had the best musicians in the best studios. Those records sound so good, those Everly uh, Brothers. Yeah, they, uh, uh, that was always really good fun, um, and uh, picking with the Everly Brothers. Uh, I was I was uh, such a fan of uh, of the of the Everly Brothers. They just were great singers, man. I mean, and their harmony was just spot on. And and uh, and Don, of course, he just sang that great lead and had you know, and it was wonderful. And I really enjoyed that. It was uh, I I always thought it kind of brought out the best in me. And of course, I always tried real hard and. And of course, James Burton. What can I say about him? He's <laughs> he's such a great player, man. Oh man, he's, uh, he's not bad. Were those records cut live? I mean, is everybody playing and singing live, or is it just the track first? Or how how are those made? Um, they were, you know, we they they had begun to uh, uh, the recording industry had uh, had grown to uh, it had expanded into different tracks and. I can't. I mean, you know, like more, more uh, beyond Monarch. Uh, you know, it was uh, had three tracks, and maybe uh, had moved into eight tracks by that time. But uh, <clears throat> I, we sort of. Uh, I remember cutting most of those things. Uh, we cut them live. It's possible that they did some um, repairing uh, vocal with, with vocals. Hmm. And of course, you could uh, punch in by that time, you know, and uh, like if you made a mistake that uh, instrumentally, you could go back and correct it, which is, you know, not very synergistic, I don't think. But uh, I, I really like uh, Monarl. I mean, uh, I like the way we recorded those records on In Style with the Crickets in New York, you know, uh, at, uh, at Bell Sound. I'm talking about uh, that inside with crickets like I fought the law and, and those things. Right. Uh, man, they just said, uh, okay, the machine's running, go for it. And, man, we uh, counted it off and started it, and uh, they, we sang it, and when it got to the instrumental, we played the instrumental, and then when we ended the song, it was done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it doesn't get better than that. It is, it is amazing. But, you know, not everybody is as good as the crickets were. You know, you guys were a special kind of unit there. <laughs> well, how nice of you to say that. <laughs> <laughs> you, yeah, you might have noticed. Uh, let's talk about three records that I love. Uh, the Bo Diddley Bach record, A Beetle I Want to Be, and uh, the Camps record about the Batmobile. <laughs> Uh, I love all three of those records. They're all fun records. They're all great sounding records, and they're all weird but great songs that you wrote. I mean, is this just you trying to pay the rent, or, or what? What was going on? Well, I was. Uh, I, I I tell you, I 
was always trying to pay the rent, man. I mean, uh, that's why I always thought it was a sin to turn down work, man. I <clears throat> I did uh, I did uh, uh, sessions that I probably uh, were, were beyond my ability, but <clears throat> man, if I got called for it, I went for it. But uh, yeah, I was try- always trying to pay the rent. But writing songs was just uh, something I. I'd, I did out of love. I didn't. Uh, I, I didn't say, "Man, I need to write a song because I got to pay the rent." I wrote the song because I wanted to write a song. Mm. Uh, and uh, those songs, you know, Bo Diddley Bach was just something crazy. I just thought uh, thought of, and it's uh, a great idea. <laughs> and uh, uh, as far as the camps, that was the, you're talking about Batman and Robin, and yeah. uh, and that um, a fellow that booked us back in. Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Uh, I mean, that's where his headquarters was. His name was Jimmy Thomas. He called me and said, "Man, they're going to have a, uh, they're going to do a series on Batman, and you ought to write a song." And and uh, and he got a guy in New York involved in it. And I was out on the road with the Everly Brothers at the time. I was uh, Joe B and Jay and I uh, weren't uh, together uh, at that time, but uh, this would have been '63 about the time I got out. And now I think it was the end of '64, but I I played for them for like a year, and uh, uh, that was right after I got out of the army. And I was on the road, and we were in, in Seattle, and I recorded. I mean, I did a demo of uh, that Bat- Batman and Robin, the Ballad of Batman and Robin, I believe it's called. Mm-hmm. And I sent it out, and they said, "Oh man, you got to go in the studio." And, then I went home for Christmas down to Texas, and uh, Tommy Alsop, who uh, you may know that name, he's sure. uh, been uh, with the Crickets. He played "It's So Easy" on Buddy's record. He played that great instrumental and some other things. But he had a studio down in Odessa, and uh, Jay and I went down, and Jay I played drums, and we got some Odessa musicians, and we did that record of ballad and uh, the ballad of Batman down in Odessa at Tommy's studio, and that's how that came about. And um, I forget what the other title was you mentioned. Bo Diddley Bach. Beal I Wanna Be. What's that? Uh, oh, Beal I Wanna I Be. I think Lou oh, Adler I, produced that one, I think. I, <laughs> funny, funny you came across that one. That <clears throat> I've always been a little bit shamefaced about that. What? <laughs> uh, because uh, <clears throat> I, I, when I, we went to England right after I got out of the Army with uh, Bobby V, and it's called Bobby V Meets the Crickets. Mm. And while we were over there, this brand new group, the Beatles, came out, man, and they had a big hit with "Love Me Do," and it was just it was the top of the charts. And man, everywhere you went, you heard "Love Me Do," you know. And as a matter of fact, I we, uh, uh, Bobby V and and uh, and the, the Crickets, uh, Jay, I couldn't go because that was during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and he was in the Air Force Reserve, and they locked him down. And so we had to use Mike Berry, an English rocker. Uh, we used his drummer. But uh, man, we went around telling everybody, man, there's this new group called the Beatles that are just outstanding. And and uh, uh, Jay Astiel has a letter hanging on his wall from the Beatles that said, hey, you know, thank you, crickets. <laughs> uh, but uh, <clears throat> I've, I've often wondered what that's worth, you know. <laughs> yeah. But... Uh, Anyway, uh, uh, I got a deal with Dimension Records, a, a, a guy that uh, 
he's a big, huge music biz figure. His name's Lou Adler. He uh, lived just in the same apartment building with me and just down the hall. And he and I got to be kind of hanging out pals. And, uh, uh, and Lou said, uh, I want to record you from Dimension. And he uh, said, uh, this new group from England, man, the Beatles. And uh, so uh, I said, uh, he said, I want to put a song, you know, put together a song, kind of parody kind of a thing. So I said, oh, yeah, I know who the Beatles are, man. And so Lou and I wrote this song called The Beatle I Want to Be. <laughs> and it was so early that when the, my record came out, they they spelled it B-E-E. <laughs> they didn't put the A in there. Wow. But that's how early it was. And then, of course, the Beatles became the biggest thing ever in uh, music. And uh, there I had this this song out <laughs> called A Beatle I Want to Be. And I, I, I've always been just a little bit shamefaced because it was really silly. <laughs> yes. Well, I think I think we can take it that way. And, we, of course, everybody loves the Beatles. Well, not everybody, but uh, sane, most sane people love the Beatles. Uh, let's, I played a song earlier called Day Gig, and it's kind of about this you know, the, this musician who can't quite make it and has to take a gig, day gig, and what a shame that is. And kind of he's like a 50s guy who just couldn't adapt. Is that something you were, you were observing or feeling yourself? <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, J.I. and I wrote that. I'm speaking of Jerry Allison, of course, the drummer with the crickets. He, uh, his name is Jerry Ivan, and uh, we started calling him by his initials, J.I. Uh, but J.I. and I wrote that. Uh, uh, he and I just always trying to write a song, and uh, and I don't remember what inspired uh, us to write that. Uh, it's really funny, uh, <laughs> Michael, how you uh, your, uh, your choice of songs that I've written is really eclectic man <laughs> <laughs> I mean um, there are a very few people that I ever interview or whoever interviewed me talk about those particular titles but Day Gig I always liked it it's kind of a crazy little song you know and the guy had to hang it up and get a Day Gig because yeah. he, he uh, couldn't quite make it you know and uh, I've known a lot of people uh, like that and uh, as a matter of fact I have in my career, I have approached that stage many times. <laughs> I don't believe. Well, you know, I think there's walk right back. There's more than I can say. There's I fought the law, and there's the uh, love is all around. I think those are probably your four most uh, lucrative copyrights uh, we could say. And you know, I think we talked about those last time. And and just to write, if you had written only those four songs and no others, uh, you'd be you'd be in the Hall of Fame. You'd be blowing people's mind. But I, you know, I think part of what you know, I want this sh- this radio show to be is to turn people on to all those other songs you've written. I mean, there's just tons of them, and they're you know, and they're all really worth seeking out. I wish somebody would compile them because there's just uh, you know, there's there's tons of great ones. And I think the mark of a good song is you know, I, I, there's some there's like Jamaican reggae covers of your songs, and there's country covers, and there's pop covers. You know, I think that's really the mark of a good song is that it, that, that they're real flexible and that everybody can hear something in them and put their own thing on top of it you know? well uh, thank you and i you know i don't know uh, how i kind of uh, reached that uh, point but uh, i always enjoyed you know writing a song and uh, also uh, uh, trying to stretch out and make it as uh, as good as i possibly could well you know earlier you said that you just tried to write songs that you yourself would like and it maybe it's just that simple you know well i uh, 
I, you know, now I, I confess that I have written a few skunks, <laughs> more than a few, I'm sure. But, you know, when you go way back to when you first started, you've got to start somewhere, you know. And some of those songs, uh, those early songs uh, when I was a teenager, you know, um, they uh, they don't quite measure up to uh, uh, to me, to what I prefer as a, what I would call a good song. However, uh, I did write uh, very early on, uh, like uh, someday that Webb Pierce recorded. I was a teenager when I wrote that, and uh, um, and I fought the law. So some of my better copyrights come from that period. But uh, it's uh, <clears throat> um, when I hear songs of, or hear people talk about songs that I wrote back in that period. You know, sometimes I cringe a little bit. But I've sort of gotten beyond it. I think, well, man, you know, you got to start and you've got to learn. You know, if you don't try, you're not, <laughs> you're not going to come up with anything. <laughs> well, it is amazing because you can kind of see your your maturity. You know, you kind of got your West Texas early early songs, and then you got your uh, your crickets songs, and then you got your kind of solo those two solo albums that I keep talking about those songs, and then you got your later '70s songs, and then you got your eighty songs where some mainstream country artists were, were doing your songs. So there really has been a bunch of different periods. But it's amazing that there are fifty year old songs that are probably putting your grandkids through college right <laughs> n- right now. I mean that is really uh, you know not that many songs last you know get covered fifty years later really. Well, I uh, you know I I've had a, a real good career. I'm 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 really fortunate. Uh, and one of the most fortunate things about my career is I've got to do what I wanted to do, you know. And, uh, and you know, uh, it's uh, uh, I guess it just about everybody has to struggle. Uh, I think if you don't have to struggle, you don't really appreciate it. And I think that's probably what's happen- what happens to a lot of, and I'm not calling any names, but I think that's what happens to a lot of people that just sort of flash in the pan. They come on, man, the scene, and they fall right off the uh, cabbage truck into a pot of gold and uh, have big hits and men uh, they don't quite know how to handle it uh but uh, man if you're out there as you said earlier like trying to pay the rent i mean you got to pay the rent whether you're writing songs or not and if if you're out there struggling for it i think it uh, that you appreciate it a lot better and uh, you don't have time for a lot of that nonsense that goes on you know <laughs> It's 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 been a certainly a long and interesting career for you. Uh, the the crickets were supposed to play next week with Nick Lowe and a free outdoor show. And you guys, uh, and that's how I sort of originally thought. Well, let's have uh, Sonny back on the program. You guys canceled because Ji's health is not so well. How's he doing? Uh, Ji's doing great right now. Uh, as I mentioned to you, um, uh, it's it's true that uh, we actually we we retired kind of uh, last October. We've been thinking about it. Well, for three or four years, we just uh, and we've never uh, really worked that much. I mean, even even back in the olden days, we only did uh, we did, we weren't like carnies. We didn't go on the road for like three hundred days a year. Uh, the most I guess we ever worked was when we were opening for Waylon Jennings, and uh, we did. I think we do like between fifty and a hundred days a year, and that was that was a pretty busy year for us. But uh, we uh, we got to where we just do the shows that we wanted to and thought would be fun, and we also quit doing tours. We'd book one in a row and then come home, and 
and uh, but last October we were playing in uh, in uh, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and after the show uh, we went back to the hotel room. We were sitting around having a beer, and we said, "Let's don't do this anymore," <laughs> because the show is the most fun part. But all the stuff that goes with it, like getting to the gig yeah. and everything. But then that we got an offer to do uh, this uh, thing in New York, the uh, uh, well. Lincoln Center uh, thing. The, the Lincoln Center, yes. Thank you. Uh, and we thought, wow, that would be a real good way to go out. Mm-hmm. And this happened back in January, sort of. And uh, <clears throat> But um, J.I., he, uh, uh, I don't want to get into too much because sure. uh, uh, it's his deal and not mine. I don't know how much he wants to talk about it. But he did have some health issues, and, uh, and uh, he uh, uh, back... Oh, about three months ago, uh, we had a kind of meeting, and his uh, he was uh, having a, a few little issues that uh, he thought it might interfere with that show. And so we said that we thought the best time to do it would be now. Let's let's go ahead and cancel, and and uh, just in case, so we we canceled the deal, and um, we we've never been one. To to cancel out once we accept a deal because uh, we don't believe in that you know we when we say we'll do the gig we'll do the gig you know and uh but uh we thought it was prudent to go ahead and cancel and so we did and uh but uh, but back to j.i he uh his uh, well uh, his psa got real high and he just uh he had prostate cancer and uh, and had his prostate removed and but man, they, he, we just talked to his wife Joni yesterday, and she said that his PSA is way, way down. I mean, down in the normal range, and so we're all really happy about that. Yeah, well, so, maybe we'll get a, a chance to kind of reschedule that last ever crickets gig. That's kind of a a big deal. Well, I I don't know uh, if of what how that'll ha- happen. I don't, you know, but never say never. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Sonny Curtis, I have got a song queued up here called The Straight Life. One of my favorite songs of yours. It's kind of, uh, I would almost call the song poetic, but but with regular words, if that kind of makes sense. <laughs> well, uh, I've, uh, it's sort of my daughter's favorite song uh, hmm. of mine, uh, but yeah, I always liked The Straight Life. It, uh, it uh, you know, so, and it, it served me well. It was recorded by a lot of people like Glenn Campbell and Bing Crosby and a guy named Val Dunigan in uh, Europe and uh, old John Gary and Al Hurt and a whole bunch of people recorded it. Bobby Goldsboro? Oh, of course. He was the main one, yeah. He had the hit single on it. I think, uh, yeah, it's a, it's quite a record. Uh, I tell you, I, I don't mind telling you, I was driving over here today, I was listening to this song, and a little bit of a tear came to my eye. I don't know why, because it's a very light song, but, you know, uh, for some reason, I just thought this is, you know, this is true love, you know, what, what this guy's describing, you know? Well, uh, well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Uh, who, whose record do you got? Uh, uh, I've got yours. Oh, my record? Yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> well, thank you. Anything Anything we need to know about this? Um, I, was, what, I wrote it uh, many years ago. Um, it... Uh, uh, I think that song is about 50 years old, 40 years old, something like that. Of course, most everything I got said old. No. <laughs> but uh, um, I just, uh, 
I was real pleased uh, with that song, and uh, and that's about all uh, uh, we need to know. I will say it is available uh, on uh, on a CD that I put together of some old songs, and I'm not really promoting. I'm just I, I put a CD together, and I'm wanting to do a couple more because I got the material. I did it sort of for a legacy for my granddaughters. I got three granddaughters, and uh, and uh, it is available on my website. And, uh, yes, SonnyCurtis.com. In fact, you said, I just got it in the mail yesterday, and that's what I was listening to in the car as we were driving over. Well, I, uh, uh, I thought you might uh, like to have a copy of it. And, uh, and before I uh, let it get out from under me, man, I want to thank you for doing I want to go bumming around. My wife said to tell you that she just loves your version of that. We played that thing to death, man. Well, that, that's very sweet. Thank you. That's a that's a great solid bones song. That is, you know, that's what a what a great number one hit that is. That's, thank you. And if you ever get into the mood to uh, to do another uh, uh, CD or anything, man, I'd appreciate it if you'd listen to some songs on that <laughs> on that one. That, I you see, know, well, I said I wasn't promoting. And I just fell into promoting. Well, everybody should do uh, your songs. Because, like I said, there's tons of them that uh, you know that weren't as big as the big ones that are really worth taking another look at. And we play them all the time here on the show, so we're we're doing our part. Sonny Curtis, it's always a pleasure to hear from you and uh, just hear all these great stories. It's just an amazing career you've had. Well, thank you very much, Michael. It's been a pleasure talking to you this morning. And give your wife my best too. <laughs> I will. Right. Oh, Louise, and my wife is Louise. Louise. I shall. I shall tell her you said that. Please do. Have a great day and, uh, and you know, stay inside and just do, you know, get some work done or something. Write a song okay. today. Okay. Talk to you soon. Thank Th- you. Thank you, Michael. Sometimes I imagine myself as a drifter, seeker of fortunes, connoisseur of great wines, dashing through meadows of yellow and green. Trying to catch the impossible dream Leaving the straight line behind Sometimes my thoughts may find me in Mexico Dreaming to keep me going out of my mind Having a ball on a couple of pop Treating the ladies to corn on the cop Leaving the straight line behind Suddenly all my silly thoughts disappear She comes to me softly with crackers and beer Winking and blinking and blowing my ear Running away with my mind It's great to be in love, I'm not really thinking of Leaving a straight life behind I'm just playing the game in my mind Once in a while in my mind I go bumming Going nowhere with no worry of time Running along chasing after a train Humming the song in the sun and the rain Leaving the straight line behind I can just see me on a tropical island Riding the surf and drinking coconut wine Having me fun with golden girls in the sand Chasing the sun through an innocent land Leaving the straight line behind Suddenly all my silly thoughts disappear 
she runs to me softly with crackers and beer Winking and blinking and blowing my ear Running away with my mind It's great to be in love, I'm not really thinking of Leaving a straight line 